Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Kyle Spencer. Kyle is the current head coach at NC State University for the men's team. He played and represented Great Britain in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney on the doubles team with Barry Cowan. He has college tennis very much at the heart of his story as a player, as an assistant coach and as a head coach. He's one of the best in the business. He gives us an insight into all the different lenses of college tennis. It's a a really informative podcast with lots of fun stories decorated into the podcast and I know that you're going to love it. My small little plea, you know how it goes now if you're an oldie to the podcast any ratings, reviews really helps these podcasts get far, far and wide. So thank you for those that have done that. If you've got a spare 15 seconds, please do do that. It's, it's greatly appreciated. And to anybody new, welcome. We love having you. Hope you guys enjoy it. Any feedback at all, you can get in touch with me at dan at sototennis.com. If you want to see what we're doing at the academy as well, then check out check out the website sototennis.com and you can also see if we are putting in to practice some of these things that we're learning on the podcast. But for now, I'm going to pass you over to Kyle Spencer. So Kyle Spencer, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How, how are you doing? Oh, it's great, Dan. Thanks for having me on. It's been... Uh... Listening to the uh, the different episodes of the of the podcast on my walks or my bike rides has been a uh, a joy, getting me through uh, my mornings on the uh, during the pandemic. That's for sure. Well, that's that's better than some people. I've heard a couple of people that have said they've been listening to them before bed because they like to fall asleep. <laughs> they like to fall asleep to a podcast. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as a compliment. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a, you know, I've, I've learned a lot, to, to be honest. I've learned, you know, sort of how, you know, sort of the, the sort of roadblocks that guys have come up through or coaches or, you know, I thought Judy Murray was fantastic. And people like that, it's just, just learning. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, no, I think it's quite, I mean, I've loved it. I've absolutely loved the opportunity to, I and mean, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. There's, there's so many learnings from every different person and it's like, just normalizing things. I think sometimes we, we live on our own a bit and we do our own things and we can worry that we're the only person in the world that's going through something. And then yeah. you start actually hearing that that's what someone else has gone through. And it's not, it's been, fa- it's been fascinating for me to do. But before we, before we go on, Kyle, so for, for those listening, Kyle Spencer was, and his playing days was, his, was a 950 in the world in singles. And doubles was where he had a higher ranking, which I can relate to, uh, 126 ATP. Um, big moment, which I'd love to get into, the 2000 Sydney Olympics representing Great Britain. Uh, what an honour that must have been. And, and then has been over as a, as a college coach now for many years in the States and is currently the head coach at NC State. Um, and yeah, I, I'm sure we're going to get into lots and lots of things around college tennis. It's great to, on the podcast to have the different lenses and obviously college tennis plays such a massive role in, in the whole tennis ecosystem globally. What's, what state is college tennis in 
during COVID nineteen. Yeah, it's fascinating to be, to be quite honest. You've you've having you're having different programs. Uh, we've had some programs cut. Actually, we've had some programs added. Believe it or not, um, you've got a variety of ways that that coaches are accessing their players. You know, a lot of the international players um, have decided to stay at home in some programs. Some have come come back over because it's the best training environment for them. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's like any other business, um, any other sport. Um, there's there's not a ton going on as it relates to college only tournaments. Um, I'm on an ITA uh, operating committee and and most of the regionals for the fall, the national events for the fall have been canceled, but a lot of uh, we call money tournaments or UTR events have, have come back on. And so it's been interesting, you know, the practices uh, with the whole team, you know, we, we nickname it the laboratory, it's the lab. And, and so now instead of going out with the players um, out of that, that, that lab and going into the competitive environment, um, they're going out on their own and coming back. So uh, that's been a little bit of a challenge. But, uh, yeah, it's it's the next sort of six months would be quite interesting to see where things go, how many, uh, you know, the season, is it going to be a full season? Um, I know a lot of the smaller schools are looking at budgets and things, and that's a big worry to, to coaches and players. But uh, who knows where it's going to go? I think uh, uh, on the optimistic side, I, I, we hope that it's a one-year sort of derailment and then we're next fall being back up yeah. uh, full strength but who, who knows and in terms of practice and again for those listening you might not know this but the ncaa which is basically the governing body for college sport i know they have a lot of they have a lot of rules and it's not that you can just practice at any time of the day and this number of hours and if, if they got restrictions due to COVID as well currently has that made it even more difficult no, it's it's just basically the the competition factor. Okay. Um, it just and it, that really depends on what conference you're in, um, and not to get into the minutia, but no, the practice is about the same. It's more sort of the protocols coming into the facility. You know when you're supposed to wear your mask, how close you can get to the players, uh, you know how spread out you need to be. Just just the normal sort of tennis protocols. The practices haven't haven't changed much. In, in sort of the, the nuts and bolts of, of a practice. And they're, they're, they're doing online classes or physically they're in the school? Yeah, where, where we're at, we started out in a hybrid situation, which means you take online and you take in-person. Um, and that quickly uh, changed to online only. And so I yeah. think just about every university is, is online only right now. Okay. And then, and then again, if you can explain to the listeners, American football to British listeners, football to anyone yeah, in, yeah, in, in the yeah. US is, yeah. is, I guess, the big thing because they bring, they bring the, the finance into the universities as, you know, what's the impact of that? Is the season going ahead? Because that's right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's same thing. It's, it's sort of conference-based. Um, but uh, where we are in the Power Five, uh, which is the sort of five biggest conferences, um, we're in the ACC. So we are playing football, but we're playing only the teams in our conference. In a normal season, you might play, you know, 
75% of your games are will be a conference opponent and then you'll play outside, you know, 25% of those games. So um, it's actually, it's actually more competitive um, this year because you're only playing the, the biggest schools. Um, so, yeah, I think um, you know, the football, football is the drives the sort of every other sport at the university uh, for better or worse, including in, some, in most places, basketball as well men's basketball just from the tv contracts and the and the um sort of how, how big your stadium is and how many tickets you can sell and and, and all the like but um but uh, yeah i think there's a significant reduction in in the amount of money that athletic departments are getting this year that's that's for sure um and we'll just see how big that impact is in years to come yeah because also i guess even as you're talking there one of the biggest income drivers must be ticket sales for American football. Yet, Absolutely. I guess nobody can get into the stadium, can they, right now? No, and that and that's another one that kind of differs. Um, so where where we are, and that's state by state. Where we are in North Carolina, I think you're allowed nine percent um, of the population of the of the capacity. Oh wow! Um, so if you take a sixty thousand uh, person stadium um, and call it 10%, then you know, okay, you, to, you know, you don't have very many people in there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely challenging times, um, but uh, we'll see how it all shakes out. Um, and hopefully it's just a, a one year, a one year sort of uh, hiatus from, from the normal practices that, uh, that each sport and each university go through. And what are the positives to come from it? Is there any positives? Yeah, I think if you look at if you look at just from a college tennis uh, environment, how you're constructing practices, the the level that the coaches and the players um, are able to be together, the amount of time is less. So, you know, being able to be able to be together now becomes an, a luxury. You know, and yeah. and I think guys are really starting to become closer as teams you're now in a, in your own bubble so to speak you got to protect each other and I, I think some of those things uh, while certainly uh, necessary um, might might not have been there before in some cases that now they, they have to be there and so I think there's some positives for sure yeah. and before before we get into there's a few more things I definitely want to get into on college and a bit more detail and you know how you got into college coaching um, but uh, people listening are going to go, is he British? Because he doesn't sound British. Yeah, so, so, so tell us, where, where's your childhood? Where was it spent? How did you get into tennis? Yeah, so, so um, my parents are both English. My whole family is English. Um, I was born in, uh, in Scotland. My mom was uh, doing her residency in the Queen, Queen Mother's Hospital in Scotland. My dad was in the British Navy. Um, and, uh, yeah, both, both from Middlesex area, uh, my parents, uh, uh, Slough and Harrow. And then, uh, when I was about four, uh, my mom is a scientist, um, an endocrinologist and, and she got a, a job offer in the, in the States in Los Angeles at, at funny enough, a university, USC, um, to, to come there. And so when I was four, we, uh, we emigrated. So, um. It's one of those where, as a as a kid, you're 
outside of the house, you're learning all the American things and you come back and it's, uh, yeah. it's a different language. As you know, uh, uh, coming to American University, you know the, the, all the differences. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's sort of my uh, upbringing um, uh, as it relates to British and American. And it was always fun on the tour. You know, I, I would come over in the summers um, and play some of the junior events and people just who is this guy you know yeah, yeah. and then and then when I finished you know finished about my second year in, in college and played some of at that time the satellites you know got to know a bunch of uh, a bunch of the uh, the the Brits and and become great friends but there was always a little a little dichotomy there um, uh, not growing up in the LTA system for sure and having spent four years in Britain and then before you moved to America, was that long enough for you to become a tea drinker? Yeah, yeah, I got it right. I, I, have, a, I have a cup of tea in the morning uh, uh, just about every day. Um, just something that, something that I like. So, yeah, yeah, it's all good. You're, hold, you're holding on to the roots. I'm sure when I was looking in before we talk, doing a little bit of research on you, I'm sure it said something about Coventry anything I'm sure mm. I saw this is a born in Coventry maybe mm. I'm maybe I'm making that up because I was starting to think um oh great I'm gonna have some questions there because <laughs> because my wife is from Warwickshire from Birmingham yeah. so yeah. I was like I was that that was a line that I was going down so you've mm. just completely thrown me with Scotland and then Middlesex it's it's a it's a it's amazing because I think I think back when when I was playing, um, whatever it was, 20, 20 something years ago, you know, there wasn't as much uh, on the internet and the stats and things like that. I remember looking at the ATP notes and saying, oh, he's right-handed and things like that. And it's amazing you go into like a Wikipedia. My wife sent me something on Wikipedia and I'm like, well, that's not, that's not true. And like, she's like, well, it says it here. I'm like, I don't know. It wasn't. So, so yeah, not, nothing with Coventry in the background. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it afterwards. If it says that, I'm going to send you a message. Yeah, if yeah. it doesn't say that, then I'm just going to ignore it and hope you forget it. And, uh, and we're, <laughs> we're going we're to move on from there. So then what about the tennis bit? When, where did, where about, you were in LA, I guess. So you were, you, yep. is that where the tennis journey started as well? Yeah, it was, it was really a fluke. I played, I played football soccer over here um till till 12 uh, baseball um basketball i played all these sports um uh you know i was i was pretty 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 good athlete um usually you know what you know always playing these traveling leagues and i remember you know sort of when i was i don't know 11 or 12 uh, i was a pitcher and my arm kind of went dead um and you know throwing pitching for baseball and and, and so I was kind of on the sideline a little bit and I wasn't playing that season. And there was a, a boy in my school and one of my good friends. And he said, Hey, do you want to come to this, uh, to, to the, to the club with me? And I said, I didn't know what a club was. Well, what kind of club? And they said, Oh, it's called the Kramer club. And you know, they have tennis and swimming and wow. I said, okay, great. And so he went down there and basically went down to swim. And in the meantime, picked up a racket and hit some balls and like, like this is great and it was like one of the biggest things uh was not relying it sounds terrible now but like not relying on your teammates for anything i said wow i i, I control everything if i lose it's my fault if i win it's yeah. because of me and 
and it kind of started started like that and you know funny story uh, nobody will uh, uh, ever know this but um so my dad was a a pretty thrifty guy and uh, we had a public park uh, that you could walk to from my house and uh he said uh, there was a guy teaching tennis down there and he said will you will you give my son some lessons? And the guy said, sure. He goes, well, how, how, how much is it? And he goes, oh, it's like five, $5 a lesson. My dad said, hey, if I give you $100, can he just have as many lessons as, uh, as he can do for a month? And the guy was like, great, this is all fantastic. <laughs> so I, come, so I, I did that for about six months, about a month in, realized the guy was homeless. He was living out of his car and he was teaching tennis at the public parks, you know, just, just out of, and then eventually I played in a, in a, in a team, a kind of a team league um, with the different parks and clubs um, here, they call it NJTL, National Junior Tennis League. And eventually we played the Kramer Club and the head pro there, um, you might know him, Dennis Rizza. Uh, his son was Rylan Rizza who played at uh, University of Virginia, sure. um, said, hey, you should come and, and play here. And, and I think it was, you know, same sort of deal, like $200 a month, and you could be a junior member at this prestigious club where, you know, Lindsey Davenport, Pete Sampras, Tracy Austin, all these amazing players. So all of a sudden, I had picked up a sport, and I just happened to be in probably, you know, the greatest club for producing pros in the world, I would imagine. It's just an unbelievable coincidence. What, yeah. a, great, what, what a great story. And yeah. just to go back, just in case the listeners didn't catch that, you started playing tennis at 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably, it, it's, you know, that, that one thing as it relates to coaching, and I know we'll circle back to the coaching, but that one thing has really impacted my idea of how good a person can get. If you say, look, you're going to start at 12, and at 22, you're going to be in the Olympics, yeah. Not not gonna happen. But yeah. I can tell you it's possible. Yeah. You know, a lot of things have to go, you know, a certain way or whatever. But um those are those that's why that's why you can never put a put a ceiling on a on a player. And why was it possible for you? Yeah, I think I got I got I got coincidentally I got a good coach. Um I think for me I had a skill that I could look around and I could see a level and figure out, okay, to, to get to this level, I need to do this. And I wasn't afraid of competing. I loved competing. Yeah. Um, so that didn't bother me. Losing, like, while hard, like, didn't deter me in any way. I mean, the, the luck that I had in terms of players around, I mean, we had somebody like Janet Lee who ended up being – she was on the national team. Amber Basica was on the national team. Janet Lee made top, uh, top 10 in the world WTA doubles. You know, um, Amanda Augustus is now the head coach at Cal, was 60 in the world in, in doubles WTA. I mean, these people were around. So I could look over and say, oh, that, that person's pretty good. Why is that person good? Oh, well, they make 10 balls in a row without missing. Oh, I need to make 10 balls in a row, and then I could be pretty yeah. good. Yeah. That, that sort of, I think that's one of the biggest skills that young players, um, if they have, uh, can jump levels. You can go and jump levels pretty fast if you're not afraid of the environment. Yeah. And how much 
I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast with someone before. I think it was a Sam Qureshi, actually. A Sam Qureshi, I believe, was a late starter as well, 11, 12, 13, along, along those lines. And, and a Sam also spoke about how much he'd played other sports. And, yep. and actually, I, I guess it's one thing to start playing tennis at 12, having never done other sports. But there's so many transferable skills from baseball, I guess, with the arm and your sending skills, your receiving skills. How influential do you think those other sports were in your development? Oh, massive. Massive. Uh, you know, just uh, when you're on a team, even if you're, you know, I started soccer at, at five, you know, and, and I remember like we have a team and it's not, it's not a good quality by, by any means. But the coach lines you up and he says, okay, you're going to run here. You're used to following directions. Um, oh, you're, you're running against this person. Oh, I want to be faster than that person. Oh, okay. How high can you jump? Well, I can jump this high, you know, yeah. um, catching balls. You know, baseball was, was probably um, the one sport in the end that helped me the most. Yeah. And I was a pitcher. And for those that don't know baseball that well, you know, you're trying to, outfox the the hitter and you have to throw into to an area and different speeds and it's just like serving it's yeah. exactly like serving yeah. and noticing where what what returners do things like that that was my ended up being my big, big weapon and and just the motion itself was you know i started playing baseball at seven and yeah. you know I, like that that throwing motion which funny enough you know is one of the the biggest issues that I see when we have international players at the collegiate level is they come from a country where they never throw a ball. Yeah, yeah. And so you see these serve motions and you're like, that guy, I promise you can't throw. Yeah, you know? yeah. um, but, uh, but I think it's really important. And I think, the, yeah. I think the team sports are important because you can compete without the whole yeah. focal point being on you and you yeah. can make mistakes and your team can pick you up and, you can pick up an, a, a, a teammate and, and you, learn, you learn that nothing is final. You know, nothing is, nothing is ever final. I think tennis, you know, as we know, you know, you look at the records of, the, of you know, a guy ATP top 50, and if he has a lifetime winning record on the tour, he's pretty lucky if he's at ranked, ranked around 50. It's not, it's not usual, you know. No, so, you, so you learn those, you learn a lot of lessons by, by losing a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I think that those are, those are team sports are really important. Oh, no, I agree. To take you back to the, the point you made about people coming overseas on the serve, do you noticeably see the American players serve better? In general, yes. In okay. general, yes. And to be fair, um, you can pretty much spot, I think you can pretty much spot a kid who's only played tennis yep. and uh, a, a kid who's played other sports. Yeah. I, I really, I really believe that you can see some of the movements because mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of the advanced tennis movements, either one are not trained at a young age or two are not sort of physically possible that for some reason in other sports, they get into these positions or movements more often. And so they're easier as, they're, as they get older and they get into tennis more, 
it, th those movements to make are a little bit easier or their recognition is easier. The start stop in a, something like being a defender in, in, in soccer or basketball or something like that. Some of these crossover moves and things uh, to, for, for whatever reason are, are, are easier moves um, for, the, for the kids that are playing other sports. Yeah, because even, I'm sure I've read somewhere, I saw a program on it, John Isner. John Isner was like a two or three day a week tennis player up until he was 16, I think, uh, 17. Yeah. And he was, playing, he was playing basketball to a high level. So are we getting it wrong in the tennis world? This whole, this whole obsession with early specialization, let's get the programs, let's get them playing this amount of tennis. So are we getting it wrong? I don't know if there's I don't know if there's a right answer. I think I honestly believe the better the athlete, the better the player in the long in the long run. Yeah. You know, I think up into a up to a pretty high level, I think the the athlete com compared to the technician, you know, the, at some point the athlete is going to win out because if if they do the job technically, you know. Yeah. I think it's hard to I think it's hard to make somebody into an athlete. I don't I don't know if you can do it. Yeah. Just but a is it Yeah, and I think I, I have a I have a, a half similar thought to that. I I think it's the second part is the skill. And that's yes. you know and and that's I guess one thing that I would say about someone in general that that starts playing the game late. I sometimes feel that those players miss out a little bit on the skills, the little soft skills, the hand skills, the fast hand, the, you know, the bits that also, I think up until a level, skill will beat athleticism. Yep. Up until a level, you know, you, you yep. can see that overweight guy who's just got nice hands, who's just yep. gives, gives the run around, you know, and that's what I think is so impressive with, with what you've achieved as well, because in, in, in general, age 12 is quite late to be starting to develop some of those skills yeah. and obviously being yeah. a, a, such a good doubles player it's obviously an area that you also managed to manage to pick up very well because there's there's a lot of skill involved in doubles um yeah. but yeah it's, it's an interesting debate but i certainly yeah athleticism and skill for me are, 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 are must and i think that's what makes it i think in some sports you just have to be skillful yep in some sports you just have to be a great athlete. Whereas what's, what's amazingly difficult about tennis is you have to be this phenomenal athlete who then at the end of that athletic movement, you then have to, you have to then produce a, a complex skill to be able to do it. You know, you have to have the combination of them both, which, yep. which is what, what's so, so impressive about, about our sport. So, so college tennis, US college tennis, massive, massive part of like we said at the start, that the tennis, the tennis world, is that where you were always heading as a player? Was that was kind of the stars? Once you'd got into tennis, was that where the stars were aligned, or was it was it seen as a failure to go to college when you were playing? That you know you wanted to be a pro and you just had to settle for college. How how was it back in the, back in that day? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, for me, for me, it was always going to be college, but. Uh, I mean, you got to realize, I mean, I, 
second year, I mean, I was allowed to play all the, all the U.S. national tournaments, which I, I don't even know if you could do that now, um, being, not being an American citizen. Um, yeah. But, I mean, second year, 16s, I think I lost first round of Kalamazoo. You know, first year, 18s, I lost, I think, first round of, of Kalamazoo, which is, our, which is the uh, American nationals, you know. Um, obviously, sec you know, my second year was a lot different. I mean, I was, I, you know, made quarterfinals of Kalamazoo and beat the guy who won junior Wimbledon, you know, who went to college. And, but at the time, I know for sure, and, and I, wasn't, I wasn't anywhere in the LTA sort of system, so I, I don't know what they were thinking, but for sure at the, at the USTA, it, it was a big push to turn pro. And the funny thing in my year in the juniors would be uh, Paul Goldstein, uh, Scott Humphreys, uh, Cecil Mamet, uh, uh, trying to think of Justin Gimelsov was one year lower, uh, John Roddick. The Bryans um, must be close in age. Bryans are two, two years younger, but okay. obviously always playing up. So, so yeah. they, they were around. All of those guys like ended up Russell, going to Mike Russell, Mike Michael Russell, Russell was uh, one, two years, two years younger, maybe one year younger. Kevin Kim, if you remember Kevin Kim. Um, so That's all why those I beat guys. First round Wimbledon. One there year. you go. There you go. Uh, they've given so, my yeah. in to my one win at Wimbledon. There you go. So, I'm done. So, Podcast so, done. <laughs> shut it down. Shut it down. Without <laughs> one. Uh, but, you know, like like these guys are all made top hundred singles ATP. Yeah. You know, um, and they were and they went to college, yeah. you know, and so but for me, it was never even a thought. I mean, somebody would have told me I would said, yeah, like I'd love to play. I mean, my biggest dream was to play Wimbledon. Um, and I never I never thought I couldn't do it. I never thought I could do it. I just decided I just tried to get better. And who I didn't know. Never knew what would be next. Then from from the juniors went to USC and went to a great place for me where I had a lot of options of where I could go. And I chose probably one of the toughest places to go for a developing player. They had won back-to-back -back national championships. Really? The number one player was Wayne Black, who went on to win five, six, seven grand slams and doubles, top 100 in singles, you know, all these guys that ended up, you know, being pros and making money. Um, but my mom worked for the school and I thought, look, practice is so important and I'm going to have all these great guys around me. If I'm going to be good enough to go further in the game, fantastic. And if I'm not, I'm in a, I'm in an unbelievable learning environment and let's see how good I can get. Yep. Um, and that's, I went there and the head coach was, was the father of Rick Leach, who was, yep. uh, you know, number one in the world in doubles, multiple Grand Slam, you know, winner, uh, Davis Cup, you know, stalwart. And the great part about it was he came to practice. I remember my sophomore year or junior year, maybe sophomore year, came to practice and we played a double set and won the set. And I said, look, if that guy's number one, you know, I can play somewhere in a couple of years, you know, um, and, and that's, that was sort of my mindset uh, going to college, you know. I, I wanted to keep playing and see, see where I could take it. What a great, what a great university, USC as well, to, 
to, to spend your, I guess, four years, four and a half years. How, how did you guys do as, as a team over those four years? Yeah, we did, we did okay. Um, I think uh, quarters, quarters, uh, lost to Peter Smith's Fresno State team, I remember. Right, okay. Like a huge, huge upset, um, second or third round. And then I think we made quarters again. Um, but uh, yeah, never, never, never got into the championship match. I played the final of the NCAs and doubles. Um, okay. So I had, I had, uh, I had a good partner, George Bastel, if you remember, who beat yeah. at Wimbledon. Caught two, caught two at Wimbledon, yep. graveyard. Yeah. Yep. So we, um, we had a great year that year in, in doubles. Uh, I remember we played the Bryans three times and, and beat them three times. Um, even wow. though they're two years younger, I'll, I'll put that one on career, yeah. career highlights for sure. Um, I don't think I ever beat them in the pros. Um, but um, we had good teams for USC, not great teams, but we, yeah. we had good teams. Um, but uh, fantastic environment to be in for sure. Some of my best friends were, 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 team, were teammates you know, of mine yeah. there. So uh, great experience. And in terms of a final of NCAAs, was that back in the day when if you won NCAAs, you got a wild card into US Open? Yep. 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 Thanks for bringing that up. Oh, um, hi. it's a big match. So it's, it's a big, big match. Well, it's the second time I lost for the, for the wild card. So I made final of Kalamazoo in doubles in the, in right, the 18th okay. Nationals and lost to Goldstein and Humphreys um, and then played final. Interesting enough, Luke Smith from UNLV played Bastel in the singles final. Okay. Um, and then the four of us played in the doubles final. So Luke Smith cashed in that, that week because he won singles and doubles. So I, Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I do remember his name actually as well. So you, James Blake won't, can't have been far off your time. Because I, I was, when I started college, James Blake was maybe just finishing up maybe. Yeah, so, so his older brother, I think he's two years older, maybe Thomas. three years older. Thomas is yeah. my year in the juniors. So he's my year. So yeah. James would have been just kind of coming on the scene, sort of freshman, I think maybe freshman when I was a senior or, or sophomore when I was yeah. a senior. Yeah. So the, so the big question, because people love a comparison, you know, people love to, love to com compare yeah. eras. How's the level in college now relative, relative to the level in college then? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough question. It's like who's better from what era? Um, I'm I'm in the sport, so I know it better than like guys that 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 I would have played with that haven't seen the, these guys play. Um, I would say it's really similar. I, I would say since, since I went to college though, tennis internationally is just a completely different, different dynamic. I mean, it's so broad. I mean, players come from everywhere now. Hmm. And I didn't get the, you know, we had a lot of good players when I was playing college tennis and a lot of guys that made top 100 and we're really, really good players. I mean, you can go down, you can go down and I probably can name 10 or 12 top hundred guys in singles, let alone top 20 ATP doubles guys when I played. And you probably can't say as many guys 
now, but the level is just, I mean, a guy that's 200 and yeah. in singles now is, can beat a top 20 guy and nobody's going to like look twice, yeah. you know, and I don't know when I was playing, if that was so much the case. Yeah. So um, would it be fair to say that I guess back, back in that day, 20 years ago, that maybe the, I'm talking relative. So the, yep. the, to, the top guys were better or there was more, there was more guys that were going on and being successful in the pros in, to the top level, but there's, there's greater depth now. Yeah, I think, I think that'd probably be fair. I think, look, when I went to, and it's, and it's no knock on, on, on my coach or anything, but for, for four years, I never had an individual, you know? Yeah. Um, and now I think just the way these athletes, especially at the high, you know, the power five level, which is the, the big time schools, the way these yeah. athletes are, are able to be trained and yeah. the, the, the things that we have at our, our, our disposal to help produce players, to help carry them along, yeah. which is for sure needed just because I think 20, 25 years ago, you could be 18, 19, and physically you could, you, you, you could compete. And, and not that 18 and 19 year olds right now physically can't compete, but they can't compete unless you're some phenom. They can't compete the week in, week out. The grind yeah. is just, it's so physical. I mean, the guys are hitting the ball so hard, you know, the amount of injuries that are, that are out there you're not going to have too many 18, 19 year olds being able to, to step into a tour event. Like a guy, like I remember my senior year would have been his junior year. I remember Gimelstab made quarters of a tour event, you know, and Goldstein yeah. won, won a couple challengers or something like that. You're not seeing that as much. Um, so I think, yeah, there's, I think what you said, like maybe the the depth now is 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 there, and maybe the top level because it just takes longer now. You know, you don't come out of college. I mean, you come out of college, and you know, we have a boy who's 350 ATP. He's coming out of college, and you know, we already know it's going to take him, you know, another two years minimum to have a chance to be in the, the top hundred, you know, just with the amount of matches you have to win, the point structure, yeah. all of that. And yeah. that's, that's a lot. That's no, a lot. Is. So what does a, what does a typical day look like for a student athlete? Yeah. Okay. Uh, typical day, you're going to have an individual with the coach, um, probably about an hour long. So that's like a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you're going to have at NC state, we don't have, we don't usually do like sort of like a, like a big bulk team practice. We're usually like small group. Okay. So you're going to have four, four or five guys per with three coaches out there, um, in a competitive, depending obviously what block you're in, if you're in a training block or if you're in a playing block, but so you're going to have, you're going to have one of those two, two, two and a half hours. Um, and depending on the day, uh, you'll have a strength and conditioning session or you'll have, we have, we do a lot of our sort of uh, aerobic activity on the, on the bike. We've got a heart rate specialist that measures all these things. So you'll have a, a bike workout of, of some sort. Um, 
in between that, you're probably having, I would say, three hours of class, um, which is usually two classes, maybe three three classes. You might have a you might have a tutoring session, you know, on one or two days of the week. Um, yeah, I mean something something like that. You're going, yeah. you're 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 on the court. You're on the court. You know, I'd say three hours probably on a normal okay. normal day. And then, and then in the gym or 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 on the bike of some sort um, for another forty-five hour, um, and then class, and then you got some class, huh? Yeah, so that, that's a, so that's a lot of hours for the coaches as well. I guess you know that back in my day, I'm not a million miles away from you, Kyle. In terms, yeah. of, I think we probably had a similar college experience in terms of. It was team practice. There wasn't a whole lot of individualized attention. It was live ball, dead ball, doubles day, you know, yeah. stadium runs. You know, you kind yeah. of, you sort of block training that got you very fit, but did it really, did it develop your game identity and individualized nature? Then, then, then probably not. Um, so if you're doing it more individualized like that, I guess that there is more stress on the coach's time as well, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would say that's that's for sure. Um, it's it's just kind of one of those when you like when you like coaching and you like doing what you're doing and you like a certain level or or you like working on certain things. It's yeah, there's a there, there's a big court component to it if you choose to have it that way. Yeah. You know, um, we've got you know three coaches that are. You know, there's different there's different systems you've got the you got one coach who's the recruiter and the other one that's the on-court coach or you you know we've got we just kind of we like being on the court and we like we like coaching and so we, we would like to be hands-on as much as possible yeah. so you know i think that that part is i never really thought about it like that like you're on the court a lot but yeah i guess yeah. i guess we are yeah before I've got a few more things I'd love to get into on the college and in specific I mean we've got it's crazy it's like 87 countries that are now listening to the podcast but there is probably 65% in the UK so it's a pretty high kind of listener field and obviously college tennis is is, is massive now in, in, in the UK so I want to get into that but I can't move on too much further without asking you about Sydney 2000 Olympics. I don't want to skip over that. That what what an first of all, an incredible achievement, you know, which you can be very very proud of. But tell us about that experience. Yeah, I was. It was. Uh, to be honest, it was com completely out of the blue. Um, uh, you know, and very. And another thing, like you know, just just fortunate. You know, I, I'm sitting at. Uh, I don't know what I was ranked at the time when the announcement came out. I think I was like 150 or something. Um, and my dad was at Wimbledon and he always used to come with, come, it was his favorite time of the year. And, and he was reading something. And it's like, I think you got a chance to, to be on the Olympic team. And I'm like, what are you, dad, what are you talking about? You know, so well, you're, you're ranked number one and they have to go down the doubles rankings. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, Tim was, whatever he was, three in the world, four in the world. Greg was, you know, making final of U.S. Open and uh, just like, just, and, you know, other guys. Like, I hadn't even looked at the British rankings of where I sat or anything like that. And he goes, nah, I th I, I, look, they're going to make it. They're going to make a, 
announcement in about three three weeks, and I don't see guys, you know, your no points are dropping off, and I just was like, wow. And I had just gotten, I had just gotten asked for, um, and you might have gone through this as well, but there was Davis Cup after Wimbledon. I don't know if you remember this. Um, there was Davis Cup after Wimbledon, and it was going to be at Wimbledon. It was going to be on the old yeah. court one. That's right. And I had never been asked to be in a training week on the team, nothing. I just, it was, you know, I didn't, I didn't even, I, I thought I'd have to be 20 in the world to even, somebody even, you know, ask me to, you know, you got Delgi and Martin Lee and Arvid, you got all Baz and you know, all these guys. I just never even thought about it. And I got asked to be on the team and I played like, and it was like, uh, you know, you come out every day, there's two sessions and, you know, I don't know if I was being evaluated or not evaluated, but I, but I played great. I was like so pumped, and I'm like, oh my gosh! And uh, and I get at the end of that week, they brought all the all the guys. There's a couple guys missing. They brought most of the guys to have a dinner and all of that. And and it was the and I was like, I, I you know they might I might I, I didn't care. I just wanted to be on the team. And if you put me as the water boy, I'll be the water boy. And you know, yeah. and it was the and the dinner ended up being the dinner to say, sorry, you didn't make the team. Um, so it, that, was, that was quite funny. The next week was um, Newport. And I played, I'd never played with it. It was a guy, Mitch Springlemeyer, who um, played college tennis, an American guy, and had asked me to play Newport. And, and I was like, I wasn't sure we were gonna get in and we got in and so at, this, at the same time that we were actually losing the Davis Cup uh, to, I got to think who it was. It was like uh, whoever Lepenti, the Lepenti brothers. Ecuador, I remember. Ecuador. Ecuador. I yeah. think we lost the tie to Ecuador. We lost yeah. the doubles. And, and kind of like in the back of my mind, I was like, gosh, I really would have liked to have been playing in that environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the, the big stages. I made final at Newport, ATP Tour event. Okay, okay. So that was like one of those. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I got the call to say, hey, look, it was almost like, you you actually, do you want to go? I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to go, <laughs> you know? Um, so it was an amazing experience. Um, I played with uh, Barry Callen, um, who I played Wimbledon with. Um, Tim was on the team, Greg was on the team. Uh, it was just, it was one of those, it was a not, for me, it was a non-tennis experience. It, yeah. it not, it was just, you know, people say, what would you rather play, Wimbledon or the Olympics? And I said, it's, you, you're basically asking me two different things because yeah, yeah. the tennis player, I would say a hundred percent Wimbledon, but as a sportsman, yeah. you know, it was it was the Olympics and and it was a it was just an I remember doing two on ones and I obviously was never the one and and Tim was doing you know he was the one and Barry and I were working him out and I said this is amazing but Roger Federer was right next right next door and I said, this is fantastic and to be honest we played I thought we played pr pretty darn well we played um, we played Kafelnikov and Safin wow and. Safin had just won the U.S. Open in like whacked Pete in the final. Yep. And he had gone on this run where he was, he was, I think he was playing like Tashkent or something. And it was, it was, uh, you know, he, he would be out until like, you know, 
10 a.m. and then play his match at like 8 p.m. and he just dusted everybody. And Kafelnikov was, you know, I don't know if he was number one in the world or two or three in the world or whatever, but I just, you know, it, it was just an unbelievable, I got drawn those guys first round and I was like, this is fantastic. And we broke, I remember we broke, uh, we broke Kafelnikov to love. Uh, to start the match, and I was like, oh, we, I, I, like that was always my thing. I always wanted to play the biggest tournament, play the best guys, you know, take it on. And we, I think we lost like six and four or something like that. We, you know, we we didn't play great in the Buster, but it was just a it was a phenomenal experience. I remember going to all these different events, and you know, you see the the Chinese uh, gymnastic team, and you know, I just couldn't I just couldn't believe like what some of these athletes were doing, it was just phenomenal. I did a warm up. I was, so we lost and I had to, and I was starting to train to play the next week and wherever, some, some indoor challenger. I was doing sprints on the track and I was like really pushing it. And this guy, I don't remember this guy, Haley Gaber Selassie. Yeah. One of the biggest, best yeah. distance runners of all time. And he came up next to me when I was doing, I was, hey, can I run with you? And my my jaw like he saw I was doing sprints he was doing his warm-up lap he was doing I get full sweats on he was doing his warm-up lap and I was sprinting and he yeah. were, we were side by side yeah. and he does that for 10,000 meters that that yes, sprint yes 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 so it's, I mean the it was, speed's amazing what what was, an experience it was amazing it was amazing I don't I you know it was extremely fortunate um, LTA were fantastic. Uh, all the guys on the team were great, and it was just uh, it was just a wonderful experience that uh, that you know I'll never I'll never forget for sure for sure. I mean, well, I, in two thousand in Sydney, I was I was in college. I was probably a sophomore, maybe going into junior. Yeah, and I remembered LSU. There was twenty four student athletes that went to Sydney. And, yeah. and again, to those listening, this is what we're talking about with college sport. It's not, there's nothing amateurish about it. You know, there was yeah. just, you know, probably, there was probably more swimmers or more athletes than there was in the whole of the UK, just from my university that were at, the, at yeah. that Olympics, you know, which really yeah. is incredible. So that moves me back across, back across to US college a lot of people's dream job is a college coach. I think when you, when you talk about, you talk about tennis coaching jobs, it's, it's this one thing that hits me. Actually, we, we all got together. The Bisham boys got together a couple of years ago and I don't know which one said it, but every job in tennis is tough. There's yep. not, there's no such thing. Everyone's grinding. Everyone's working. Everyone's, you know, but it's always college coaching has always been one that I certainly have put up on, on a pedestal. How do you get into it? How did, how did that happen? So I, I was kind of at, you know, when I kind of stopped playing, um, I did probably the worst thing that you could do when you stopped playing, which was go coach a player on the tour right away. Um, yeah. Because uh, I coached one of my teammates at USC was a guy, Cecil Mamet, who got to about 60 in the world, but he needed a coach. We were very good friends. Um, I thought I could help him. And so for about uh, 10 months, uh, you know, I, I did that. And I, I just, I just didn't, 
you know, I remember a particular match. He was in Scottsdale, Arizona, playing a tour event, and he played Sebastian Grosjean, who was in the at the time was like five in the world. And Cecil played great, and he lost four and four. And he came up to me after the match. Said, what do we need to work on? And, and you know, I was always really honest, and I'm 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 not black and white all the time in, in terms, but but oftentimes I think the players that I coach know that I'm going to tell them the truth. And I said, Cease, you played great. Grosjean played great. And if he plays great and you play great, you lose four and four. And that's the way it is. And I can't tell you that there's a bigger skill that you need to acquire or whatever. He just, he just does some things. He's got a little bit more weaponry. And, and I started really thinking like, I'm not sure I think when you, and, and a lot of the pro coaches, you know, might say this, but unless you're on like, you know, a, a, a player where you know for whatever, the next three years that you're, you're going to be at these tournaments and you're going you're gonna to do 25, 30 weeks and you're going to come back home. And but people forget when you come back home, it's not like you can make money or, you know, it's very difficult or, or have like a, you know, you're going to leave an apartment, you're going to have, you know, what are you going to yeah. do financially? It's very, you're very in the middle of yeah. things. And I didn't like that feeling. Um, and, and I knew that the, just at home, Peter Smith, who was at Fresno State and Pepperdine had just gotten the USC job. It was my alma mater. I knew the assistant at the time, who was my former teammate, uh, uh, Brett Hansen Dent, was going to be leaving. And I just reached out to Peter and I, and I thought, I actually thought at the time, not necessarily about college coaching, but this would be a placeholder. Maybe I go get a master's, I go to law school. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. And I got in, I got into it and, and it was like tailor-made, it was, everything I wanted to do. Um, I love the level. I love the, for the most part, the openness of, of the guys. I had a connection because I was just coming off the tour. I wasn't super uh, past that. So I could, I could give them insight. Um, and, and it kind of fit, it just kind of fit. And it was, uh, it was okay. You know, it wasn't to do with the money. It wasn't to do with prestige or anything like that it was just I get to come to the lab I'm a big practice guy in terms of I I like I like helping guys in the middle of practice I feel like yeah. you know you can watch a match and you know at a tour event and you can do all your charting and all of that but where the real work comes in you actually have these blocks of time and and on the tour it's really hard it's really hard to like put something new in from week to week Yep. You know, and to have somebody have a lot of confidence in that when they're playing for their paycheck, you know, um, and then some of the sort of autonomy of it, uh, you know, on the tour, it's, it's a really, it's really strange dynamic. You're, you need to tell the player what to do and you need to be honest, but they're the ones paying your salary and that dynamic is really tricky. Um, and I liked having, you know, six to eight players. I like being able to make a, a difference. Um, I like to be able to share, you know, help them not go through maybe some of the poor decisions that, that I made, you know, um, in whatever schedule or, you know, um, 
I like to always uh, tell the guys all the time, I say, look, there's, there's probably no place on a tennis court that, that you will go that I haven't been, yeah. you know, in the sense of, I know what it's like to lose last round qualities. And, you know, if I can just break, if I can just, if I can just break serve here, you know, everything will be great. If I can just get into the main draw, everything will be great. Or what it feels like to serve for a title or, you know, all those things, you know, I yeah. felt like that level I could have a, I could have an impact. And what I also found out was like, it's a little bit fountain of youth. You know, it's, you have for four years, you have this, this, this group of players, but every year that, that group kind of changes and, they, and each team takes on a different dynamic. Each player is a little different. They come, you know, to, to university with a different, a different worldview than, than every other person, you know, and I enjoyed it and I still enjoy it. Yeah. That's, I've got a couple of questions actually that have jumped to my mind, but one of the things I did want to ask that you've touched on there is how do you set a culture and keep a culture when the players are ever evolving? And it's like a revolving door, you know, two in, three out, three in, two out. How do you keep those same cultures moving? Yeah, it's to me, it's, it's, Everybody, like that's that's a lot of the buzzword when you get a new coach come in. You'll see the press clippings, you know, got to set the culture or whatever. And and to me, it's it's pretty basic. You know, it starts with honesty. You say, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you if you're bad today, I'm gonna tell you you're bad. If you're good yeah. today, I'm gonna tell you you're good. I'm gonna say like, look, you know, when we took over at uh, at NC State, I said, I know what it's like to be in the Final Four. Okay, so I'm going to set the set the level of where we need to be as individuals, but also where we need to be as a team. And I'm going to hold you to that. Is there anybody that feels uncomfortable with that? Nope, nope, nope. Everybody will say nope. Okay, so like when you know we get two months in and the dog days come and you're you know okay, I'm still going to hold you to that. Just know that that's what it's about. And I think that goes a long way. Um, And as as the new players come in, the players that have been part of the system, and if you're doing it well, then you've had some success. They're, hey, look, first day of practice, this is what coach is going to say. This is what Kyle's going to say. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, don't walk out without this. Don't walk out the, to the court without this. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, you know, there's, here's the things that you shouldn't do, and here's the things that he's going to expect you to do. So, Make sure, make sure you do it. So some of it is, is team driven. And then it's like, I think it's also for us, we're in a fortunate position, you know, that we have the resources that hopefully show the players that we're looking for, you know, um, that w- the guys that we're looking for want to extend their, their tennis playing careers. Yeah. They want to get, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the guy that said, look, I got the 600 ATP, I'm done. I wanna have a nice experience in college. I'm gonna try as hard as I can, love it. Like there's nothing wrong with that guy. But for me as a coach, for Chris, my assistant, like that doesn't necessarily get us up in the morning. You know, yeah, yeah. I wanna be part of a process of a guy. You know, I tell, we tell them in the recruiting process, you know, whoever your federation is, I wanna talk with that coach. I wanna make sure your, your individual coach Yep. You know, I want to tell you, Dan, Dan Kiernan's your, your, your coach at the academy. I want to speak with him. Yep. I want everybody, we're on your team. 
yes as an yep. individual and so when you come in we're here for you you know yep. the one thing we ask is to be open-minded and so i think culture wise if you get similar similar guys they don't have to be the same person they don't have to play the same way but if they have the same process of yeah. i want to be a pro player or i want to get as good as i can get yeah. then i think some of that is like you know everybody needs a a little a little check once in a while to say hey what exactly why are you here what are you trying to do yeah. and but if you get a bunch of guys like that i don't think culture I don't think it like changes that. I mean, yeah. it doesn't change when you bring new guys in, if you're doing a good job of bringing, you know, the guys that you want, you know, yeah. to be part of the program. It's different if you're, you know, it's different if you're, if you're in a different environment that have different expectations, yeah. different goals, then things can get cloudy, I think. Yeah. But I, I have to commend you, Kyle, on, even from watching afar, you know, social media and the, the whole world, we're all more connected than we realize, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I think we all make snapshot judgments. So we just subconsciously, we're always, <clears throat> and everything that I see come through from yourself and have done for years now, and I've always had a keen eye on it because I'm, I'm very passionate about college tennis as well, is what's come loud and clear to me is that you are invested in that journey with your players. And I think what probably my biggest pet peeve actually through my college days, and this is probably part of the times, was it was almost like my last day finished and relationship died. Done, yeah. cut off. Yeah. And it was like, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I've, I've, I've given my heart and soul for you for four years. Yeah. And, and actually I have you on a pedestal as my college coach you know, LSU is my home. It's, you know, all of these sort of things. And probably for 10 years, I tried to keep a relationship going because I genuinely had my coach held in such high esteem. But it, it was just like the cord was cut. The cord was cut. And it was yeah. like, you know, I went back to Louisiana last year or two years ago now. And that's the first time in probably 15 years and I was, wow. I was a mile from my coach, who, I, again, I still, a great guy, still look up yeah. to him, let him know I was coming, and he didn't even make the effort to come and see me five minutes away. You Amazing. know, and, and that, that's what, what I really feel from what you're bringing together, is you, what you're part of that, that process before they come, during it, and then, and then after. And, and that's also where you, you in my opinion, you create something special as well because I graduated in 2002. Yeah. My heart is still LSU massively, yeah. massively. You know, yeah. it, it's not something to, to those listening. It, it, it does, it gets in your blood. It yeah. gets in your blood. And if you've then got a coach who, who was also making you part of that, which brings me into my next thing around recruiting, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. there is, there is a, it, it done in a genuine way it then has a massive effect on recruiting. And if I take you back to you starting, so obviously you know tennis very well, you were a fantastic tennis player. Going in, it was probably second nature working with players on their tennis games and you know, coaching, I'm sure, came very natural to you. How was it recruiting? Because I guess that's different to what we're used to doing as, as tennis players and tennis coaches. How was that at first? Because it's a big part of the success of people in college tennis. Yeah, I had, you know, 
um, it's a good story. I, so I, I came in and I was the assistant for, for Peter at USC. And I wasn't recruiting. It was, it was the players were recruiting us. Okay. So I walked in and, you know, you pick up the phone. It's the number one recruit in the country. And like, we want to play for USC. And it's how do you. So one of the reasons okay. um, I left USC to go to Baylor was because I wanted, I'd figured out, I wanted to be a head coach. I want to run my own program. And I don't know how to recruit. And it wasn't anything, it yeah, wasn't yeah. anything negative with Peter or, or USC or anything like that. But I had to go, like, I had to go and, like, cut my chop. You know, I had to go figure yeah. out how to do this. I need to go, you know, and, and so I went, to, I went to Baylor and Matt Canole was so welcoming into the program and taught me a lot about, you know, just how he had, you know, he built a program from like literally dirt. There was like no courts. Like I played at USC and I, I had no idea where Baylor University was. I never heard of it, you know. And then, you know, we, when I was in my first year, first year at USC, uh, we made the final four um, and we lost to Baylor in the, in the final four and Baylor won the national championship. It was Matt's um, national championship. So, but nobody wanted to come to Waco, Texas, you know, I mean, a fantastic facility and, and just got it. The, the town got a bad rap, the university got a bad rap and it's not like it is now. They've done a great job of, you know, all the sports there, but it was hard to recruit there. It was, yeah, yeah. it was, how do I get there? There's no direct flight. There's, you know, who am I, you know, Matt said, who are you going to recruit? So what they, you know, I, usually I get a number. Peter always gave me the number, and it was like the guy who was ranked like number one. He's like, we don't do that. We nobody's nobody's right, looking yeah. for us here. So I, I, you know, the recruiting part part, you know, it's different obviously when you're an assistant because it's not that you're working for somebody else. I think every time I've been an assistant, I've always felt like it was a team with the head coach. But there's a philosophy, there's something that the head coach wants, and there's certain players, there's certain pipelines, so to speak. You know, if you have a great player that's from, you know, uh, England, you know, and, uh, or Taiwan or whatever, that you can, you know, you know how it works. You're going to get, hey, who are the good players that you know of that are coming up? And you call yeah. that person. And so, um, but then, you know, the, the program that I was at, you know, even Baylor, when I got to Baylor, you know, they had just been to the final four. So it's not, it's not Baylor versus pro tennis. It's Baylor versus pro tennis versus UCLA mm -hmm. in recruiting or Virginia or yeah. Georgia or LSU or whoever, whoever the big dogs at the time are, you, you number one have to convince that, that person that college tennis is is the right pathway for them yeah and then number two you've got to beat out all these other schools yeah. um so you know every 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 year i feel like the recruiting changes i feel like you know the players come from different areas what's important to them you know we went through a period where none of the top juniors came to college. Then we went through a period where almost every top junior went to college. And then we went to, this country has said, we're not sending anybody to college. And then it's like, you know, everybody, it's, it's just, it goes like that in cycles sometimes. And for me, the recruiting process is, number one, 
can we help this? Can we help this guy's tennis? Can we? Because it's not. I, I'm not. I'm not always the guy to say like, yeah, we can. We can help you. Some guys, I look at them and I go like, okay. I see where how they see the, you know get to know them and you see how they see the game and you see how open or not open they are to the coaching and you can pick up things. I mean, you watch players all the time and you go, okay, if I had this junior in my academy, here's what I'd spend three months doing right now to yeah. to get this this guy's game. And and you go and say that to them and they go, hey, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you see my ranking? I'm yeah, yeah. I'm this guy right now. And so you, know, you gotta have you gotta have a right mix and then you know as it relates to men's college tennis you know there is a there are financial implications so you know every program is four and a half scholarships and some places cost more than the other and you know you have to you know it's 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 not any different i don't think than a federation where you're or academy where you're looking at talent id and you have to be good on the talent id you know there's a there's a movie that i love it's called Moneyball, you know with, yeah. with uh, brad pitt and, yeah, and that's that's what it's like it's not what they're worth but like i've got this pool and i only you know a lot of, of the international guys don't realize i only have four and a half scholarships to put around you know and some guys need the full full whole package and if you do you're probably not going to to the top school because yeah you know the top the top the top five top ten you got to be able to field a really competitive team and that that's usually six to eight guys and that's tough but um the the recruiting is and it's changing i would i will say that the recruiting with social media with you know it used to be you write them a letter you know it used to be give them a phone call with your one phone call a week now you can talk to them all the time and I'm not good at that. I don't, you know, I'm not good at talking to them every single day. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, some kids really love that yeah. and some kids don't need it. And, and I probably not going to get the kid that needs me to call and talk to them, yeah. you know, every single day, you know, yeah. it's like, they, they say, you know, I'm also not on the road all the time and they go, well, coach, you weren't at this tournament. And I'm like, you know what, you're going to, you're going to know something that, that when you come to NC state and, you're going to see how many we're at almost every single practice because we're not on the road recruiting because our pledge to you is when you come into the program, we're going to help you get better. Every time I'm on the road and I'm not there to practice, then I'm not really fulfilling what, what I should be doing, I think. And, and what I love to do, which is be on the court. And so it's uh, recruiting is tricky. And some guys are very, very good. Yeah. No, but it's such a balance of, because I guess I'm on the other side now. I mean, college coaches, to be honest, are the bane of my life in some ways yeah. over the years. And it's like some, 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 some schools are good because they've got good coaches. Some schools are good because they've got good recruiters. You know, and it's like, and, and this is obviously the, the hard bit for players. And I want to kind of come from the player and parent angle now for a couple of minutes. It's, sure. it's, it's quite hard to to get that bit right. I mean, I've had, and I won't name names, I don't think he's working in, I think he's retired now, but a coach who called me up and his first words were, um, I'm going to make your tennis academy. It was in the early stages of the academy. Wow. And uh, I, my reply was, you should have been nicer to me when I was in college. 
<laughs> because it there was a go. it was a coach it was a coach from the SEC who yeah. I'd had who I'd had a couple of big big bust ups with, and he was a right. He, he, I ended up getting on well, but he was an arsehole in the matches, you know. And I, yep. yep. you know, I said that it all. Hey, karma's a funny thing, coach. I said. I said if you'd only, <laughs> if you'd only not said those things to me. And basically, what I mean, I'm, I'm obviously I've been around the block with college, but he was. But to another coach, he was. It's unbelievable the angles they're coming from. You know, I've got this player, and these players will come and train at your academy, and they'll do this, and they'll do that, and it, it was like that was. I always find sometimes it's the January recruits that become quite desperate, you know, and someone's just picked up an extra 40% scholarship and they need that player. They need that player and they get a sniff that maybe Bobby from Hungary is is thinking about coming in and then they go, they go hard and hard. So that one, just for the listeners, obviously, Again, uh, anyone that is looking at potentially going to, to college, just, just be careful of the serial recruiters, um, yeah. you know, and, and actually try and get down to the, the genuine connection. That's our sport. You connect with yeah. your coach in a genuine way and you, you understand each other and philosophies and values and, you know, how, where the game's going. You won't go far, far wrong. Um, I'd like to do a little thing. Anyone that is listening who's on the fence currently so i want you to sell u.s college not nc state but u.s college to our listeners in two minutes yeah uh great team environment to come and train with like-minded people facilities that rival the premiership locker rooms training grounds you name it um the ability to hone a craft whatever the level that is there's a place for you in 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 a u.s college program um the idea especially in the in a place like the uk now i know there's you know a couple places now where you can go and you can be a student get a degree that you're going to use in the real world and continue to play your tennis. But the pool in the, in the, in the U S university system is, is just a massive pool with, with so many options. You'd be, you'd be shocked. Um, for the most, for the most part, not paying for equipment, not having to figure out who you're going to practice with the next day, not having to go get a gym membership. Um, the things that, and I'm, and I'm, I'm really broad ranging this because obviously, as you know, there's the, there's the, that super, super high level. And there's the, there's a mid-major level and there's a low major, and there's a D1, a D2, D3. So, but at the, at the top level, you absolutely can come in being on the fence, not sure if I should go pro and in four years do all the things that you need to do in the time allotted with no, no rush to make points or money or, or go into debt and be ready when you come out to have already bypassed the futures level, be into the challenger level with an idea of exactly who you want to be as a player with what we like to call it with all your armor on and, and ready to attack, attack the tour the best way possible. 
Um, how's that? that I'm work? in, coach. I'm in. Can I? Yeah, do I get? A, do, it. do I get a second goal? Absolutely. We'll fi- <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll figure I, it out. I actually had a dream a couple of months ago that I did, and I, and it was it was this dream, and I was like, it was so real, but I wasn't very good, which I'm not very good anymore. So I was like. I, I was at practices and I was like, it was all getting quite real. Like the first matches were coming up and I was just wasn't playing well and I wasn't fit. And it was like, it was a, it, it was a dream that turned to a nightmare. So, <laughs> so, so, so maybe, I, maybe I don't want my second goal. But the only thing that I would add, Kyle, and you, you've touched on it, but it's actually your doubles partner, your Olympic doubles partner, Barry Cowan, who was on the show. He said something that I believed for a long time, but he put it very well. That it, he said, in my heart of hearts, I honestly believe you only get five or six years on the Futures or the Challenger Tour. You know, it's kind of all anyone can really handle, you know, it's yeah. it, because it's such a brutal world. Obviously, if you get into the big leagues and you're playing ATP, WTA, and you're traveling with your team and Grand Slams, then it, it prolongs the career. So my big thing to anyone listening, why not have your five or six years age 22 to 28 rather than, rather than 18 to 23, 24, you know, and that's, yeah. that's, that, that's my biggest, that's one of my biggest pet peeves, to be honest, yeah. in the federation system. I couldn't, people, I mean, I wrote a paper on it to the USTA about 10 years ago and I just, obviously I'm coming from the men's side, but, but just the physicality of the tour, you're going to give the bulk of, of the money to the 18 to 22 year olds, it's a waste, you know, and, and the things that I, I, I like seeing, you know, from obviously I'm, in, I'm invested, you know, in looking at like the LTA and, and what they're doing um, with guys like Cam Nori, um, you know, to be able to come, they come out, you know, and they're, they're, they're real, they're guys are like ready to go, you know, and it's like, okay, now we're going to fund you. You know, um, because now you actually have the opportunity. The guy is strong enough. The guy's gone through. We paid at the university system. We've paid for the the that those levels to be crossed. You know, yeah. and the one other thing I would add, and I don't know if it's still the um, the mindset, but I often felt, um, obviously in between you know growing up in in the states and obviously observing and and not 100 percent you know part of you know sort of the british uh, mindset thinking and i don't know if it's changed i have a feeling it's changed a little bit but i always you know i always felt when i came over it was there was a lot of like naysayers you're not going to be able to do this it's you know when i came over um to play to play in Britain and it's like you know there was there was this level it's just like it's just so tough and the switch I think when you go to the when you come to the states and the Americans I think just the American psyche to a certain degree is you can be anything you want you yeah. can do anything here's all these success stories like you were talking about LSU I remember I've got a book that's 300 pages thick about all the USC Olympians and and I think in 2000 or 96 Olympics or something. If USC was a country in in medal count, they finished fifth. <laughs> so you have all these successful, highly successful people in one area. You don't need to go and look at and and figure out how 
that, you know, this, this high level works, you have it right in your backyard, yeah. you know, in, in every sport, like you were saying. And, and so that mentality of, of why can't you do it, you know, is in, in, in the area that the, in the, the level that we're at is, is really prevalent. Um, Very good. Just another thought. And, and in terms of British players, it seems I have two questions and I'll ask the first one before I move on to the second. Uh, it seems as if British tennis players, it's kind of done that full circle of maybe back in mine in your day, it was like, don't go there. It's just, just college, you failed. To, to now, it's the thing that you do. Um, but it also seems that US colleges seem to quite like the British players. There seems to be, have been some lots of success stories. Is there anything that stands out with the British players that you think attracts, attracts the coaches to them? Yeah, I think there's a couple things, and, and, and I don't want to say anything that's too off base, but number one, like starting off, look, the, the college tennis matches are played on a hard court, you know, and, and the, the bane of, uh, of uh, different surfaces in, in Britain is, is obvious. You know, it's, you're playing six months of the year, you're playing indoors, and most of the time you're probably playing on a, a quick hard court, you know. Yeah. And so a lot of the skill sets, you know, everybody wants to talk about the doubles. I don't know that the doubles in college tennis is like such a big deal, but, but people talk about it all the time. You know, they send me recruiting videos and it's all about how they can volley. And I'm like, okay, that's great. You know, but, um, but they do have, you know, a lot of the British players have, have that skill set. They're more, their game is more well-rounded getting into school. They're not having to take a TOEFL exam and, and, you know, that's just a, a pretty easy one, you know, in, in, in terms of the school system is, is, is a high level school system in Britain. Yeah. So, you know, coming in most likely that, that, that boy or that, that girl is going to be able to, to manage the academic workload, which people don't think it's a big deal, but it is when you, when you, yeah. when you have, when you have guys stressed academically, you know, there's just, something has to give, something's going to take away. It's going to take away from the tennis most of the time. So I think that's a that's a I think that's a uh, uh, another thing that adds to it. And then I think the sports culture I think is 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 pretty good. I mean, most most of the guys that I see are 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 into whether it's the footy or the cricket or you know whatever. You know, they're they're into that sports culture. And when you're going to a university and you've got you know anywhere between eighteen to to thirty sports programs. Yeah. you know the, the that you know people like being around other athletes and things like that i think that's a that's a super positive thing too they're used to competing yeah um so i think i think those things you know yeah. you could you could kind of highlight and is there a danger that there's now too many brits going to u.s college in relation to the college or the federation or i think not so much the federation i, I just think my one of my thoughts and you might not have the answer to it because you you're working at a higher level but i guess one of my thoughts is there's quite a lot of brits now that end up in division threes or they end up in kind of almost no place usa no place usa and they turn up and actually (laughs) the coach isn't a tennis coach the coach is you know buffalo bill from down the road 
you know, putting his cattle in the field and, and actually comes down a couple of times a week and gets some tennis balls out. You yeah. know, but yeah. it, it all it all comes under it all comes under the one college college tennis yeah. <laughs> ring when it's it can be so different the experience. Yeah, I think you know, important for the for the people who are who are in this process or whatever is like really defined goals of what you want to get out of it. You know, um, uh, what do you want to get out of this of this experience? Um, and then you got to do your homework. You know, you got to you know. Right now, we can't have visits and things like that, but you got to you know. People people are so big on getting this, like especially at our level. I get it, and we want to do it. But the like the official visits and oh, the coach is paying for me to come over and to look and this and that and and you know we at our place we pride ourselves and look doesn't matter who's coming it's going to be business as usual there's no show and you know in, in other places they'll put on the show you know sometimes I, I i think if you can afford it taking a trip over and going out and checking out the school and looking over if it's not such a high level um player that's coming to look at different schools actually just looking over look what does a practice on wednesday look like yeah, yeah. you know what is what is the you know sometimes it's what does the instagram feed look like you know, or the, is the team taking pictures of when they're going to play a tournament in, you know, Amarillo, for instance, or something, you know, are they having a, are they seem to be enjoying the environment, you know, um, talking to other players on the team is important, but I think you're right. I think, you know, I think if you're coming to play college tennis from, you know, from, from the international perspective, you, you got to have a decent level and you've got to expect that the, program that you're going into is is something worth coming for or else why are you coming well i might be coming because the chemical engineering at this school is is the best and i can't get that in britain okay great you know then then that's what you're coming for you're coming for the education piece yeah. but um just a just a comment to come to any college or university okay yeah you're right it, it, you, you could get some situations that you know that might not be as favorable as you think they're going to be my last question before we move into quick fire kyle um and uh, yeah, the insight's been been brilliant so thank you so much we've talked a lot about the pros of college and and without without a shadow of a doubt the pros are, are massive you know I'm, I'm one of the biggest advocates out there for it what are the cons of and or the watch outs? I guess we've touched on the watch out of getting the right university, but what are the cons and the watch outs for for people that are looking into college? Um, number one is make sure that you're coming for the right reason and that you're being honest. You know, I think a lot of people. I see it both ways. I see, look, they want to come and they want to go to, they want to go to LSU. They want to go to NC State or Georgia or one of these big, big schools. And deep down, what they really want is they want to play and they want to play a lot. And they want to be a fat part of the fabric of the team, you know, but they're also drawn to the fact of like, this is, wow, this is so, look at all the nice things this place has. Yeah. So, so be honest with what you're really coming for. Number two, make sure that you're understanding what the coach is expecting and the team level, you know, um, 
it's very easy to say like sort of at, at our level, look, I'm coming because this, I want to be a professional, you know? Yeah. Well, well, I want a Ferrari, but I don't have, you know, 150K to go buy a Ferrari. So my want is just a, a wish, yeah. you know? Um, I want to have a coach that cares about me and, and wants to improve my game, okay? Well, if, you, if, if the coach schedules an individual, like I don't really want to do an individual. Okay, well, you know, just make sure that from the, from the recruit side of things, looking at the college, that exactly what you're telling the coach is what you want. And the coach, there, and the flip side is, you know, you got to make sure, look, if you're a high-level guy, you got to make sure that the, the place that you're going has a track record of improving players. Yeah. That's a con. If you go to a place and the, you know, the coach just recruits good players, that's great, but you might not be finished yet. You might not be done yet. So you're actually going there to develop, but there's no development structure put in place. You know, the coach is, is really excited for you to be the best number five player for four years. That's not development. You know, let's, let's make sure we're not going to teach you how to, you know, bomb your serve. We're actually just want you to spin it in and make you make a million balls from the, you know, two meters back, yeah. you know, um, because there, there are, there are, you know, at the, at the, the overall, why the coach is getting paid, why there's a program is to, to win. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's, that there is that, that kind of scenario. I think it's, I think it's tricky. Um, yeah. So you got to do your homework. You know, yeah. I think that's, that's really important. And, and be honest in the process. I mean, everybody likes to be recruited. Everybody likes attention, you know, so to speak. But if you're going to be asked to do things when you get there that you're, you're not sure is exactly what you want to be doing, then, then that's not a good fit, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's, there's enough fits out there, if you're honest, that you'll find the right, the right situation. Um, you know, how you, you're going there instead of going on the pro tour, how many players has the guy's guy produced? Yeah. You know, talked about relationships. You know, I've got a guy right now that who I coached when I was at SMU, who's Nate Lamons, who's top 100 in the world in doubles, and I watch every one of his matches. We talk yeah. after every, you know, after every every match he wins, loses, we talk, and that's how I coach him because he can't afford to have a coach on the tour. But we talk about that's part of our family. You know, somebody comes in, you're part of our family. You got to do something really 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 bad for us to disown you you know and if you want that relationship when you're done we're here for you that's what we want we're we're excited for you um so you know i think there's a there's a lot of hungry guys that want to win um tennis matches and want the team to be successful and as as long as that fits in and that culture fits in to what you want as a player you know, um, you know, does that, you know, certain things like you might, you, we've got guys that are, you know, in biomedical engineering. Yeah. Well, at some places, the coach doesn't want you taking biomedical engineering because he knows that there's five extra labs a week that you're going to be in and you're going to, you're not going to be able to put your best tennis out or that's not, you know, be careful about where you decide looks good to you, what makes sense yeah. to you, you know, so. Very good. Very good answer really really good wise <clears throat> wise advice for people i said it was last question but 
as you're talking, <laughs> the pressure on coaches, you kind of touched on it, the winning, how competitive and how much pressure is on coaches in the power five to be doing or, or to success measures to keep their job? Yeah, that's hard to, that's hard for me to kind of answer. Um, I've always gone on into this process of my expectations of how we're going to be as a program um, are at a level where I don't think any athletic director would think that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. But the realities are, you know, in the end, if you don't, if you don't win at the highest level, then, then they have every right to, you know, make a move and, and ask you, ask you to, you know, not coach there anymore and, you know, fire you and bring somebody else in. So I think, yeah, I think they're real. I think they're real. It's a real question. Um, but I think for every guy, it's a little bit different, you know? Um, and because this process as a coach is, you're not just a tennis coach. I don't, I think, uh, you know, this, and you yeah. know, you're a recruiter, you're, you've got to make schedules. You got to balance a budget. You've, uh, got to hire assistants. You've got to put, uh, you know, the coaching part, training part about it. You've got to manage relationships with different entities. You've got donors, you've got all sorts of things. Um, you're more like, you're, you're more like a little bit of a CEO to, of a, you know, branch of a large company. Sure. Um, so there are pressures, um, for sure. Um, I, you know, it's just, it's, I think every guy has a different situation. You know, every guy is, sure. you know, feels different pressures about the job or winning. And, you know, for me, as long as the team is prepared, I always think about it like this get the, the best, the best guys who have the most like-minded and help them improve individually, create an atmosphere where they enjoy playing, then we're going to have a good team. Yeah. And if that team is prepared, then we're going to have our fair share of fantastic results and yeah. tough losses and all of those things. Yeah. Um, and then I feel <clears throat> like I'm doing my job. Kyle, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job. It really does. And it's, it really does. And that's not just from this talk. That's also from, from following from afar. And, and I thank you massively for, for joining us. Um, people will take a lot. You know, any, anyone that's looking into college, you know, listen to this, share this with people that are. I think it's a really important messages to get out. So you ready for our quick fire round to oh, finish? I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I forgot about easy. that. Easy. I'm not pushing you. I'm not pushing you too much. All right. All right. Um, serve or return? Serve. Singles or doubles? Doubles. College or pro? Uh, right now, college, yep. Let cord or not? On the serve. Uh. Yeah, I'd say not. Injury timeout or not? I go back and forth on this just because I know, I know you need to have one sometimes, but I just see it abused so much. So I think you got to have it though. 
five sets in slams or not. Yes, yes, five sets, five sets. One rule change that you would make in college tennis. Maybe play the, play the lineup the way you want to play it. Yeah. Okay, well, has it got to go by UTR now? No, it's it's a it's a it, yeah. It's, it's not it's it's not an exact science, but too many too many people think that you should play. This guy should play here. This guy should play here. You got him in the wrong spot. And I'm not saying necessarily me, but the coach knows his lineup. You know, the coach knows who's the best guys. You know, um, oftentimes it's so close, like some of the level. Yeah. You know, play play the way play the way that you you think that you know, is, provides the most competitive match. I mean, that's, that's the way I look at it. And one rule in professional tennis that you would change? I would just like to see, it's not a rule, so I'm going to dodge this one, but I would just like to see the, the balance financially go down to some of the lower levels a little bit more i know there's been tons of talk and i've listened to so many of the podcasts that you've had about this topic and you know it's just when people tell me i'm a professional tennis player like can you pay your car loan can you pay your home loan can you have money in the bank then you're a professional you know yeah. you don't you don't see a, a you don't see a footballer in the championship division you know worrying that you know where the next meal is going to come from i don't think you know yeah. um what, so, what, what ranking should it go down to? Roughly, roughly, roughly. I, I, think, I think if the tour could legitimately support down to 150, like legitimate, like, you know, I don't think one, where they are, where they're at 150 is not, is, they're not, you're not making any money. I really, I mean, you're making a little bit, you're not, you're not making, you know, you're not at the end of the day saying I had a career and, putting money into a 401k and all it's, yeah. you know, 200 maybe. I mean, there's, there's just damn good players that are out there at 200, you know, that for whatever reason, you know, and you see it, you see it, this French Open is a great example of how many, how many guys can really play, you yeah. know, um, but. Yeah, but if you're, if you're 230, 240 and you get into Grand Slam qualities, I believe now, that those players can can live, you know, they can they get they get their four grand slam money, and then you'd like to think they're winning a round or two out of those four grand slams. If they're that ranking, they're also a challenger, doing okay, you know. So I would say that at that level, they're probably bringing in 150 grand a year. Okay, the expenses. You know, I guess my 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 thing on that, and, and I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying about yeah, yeah, yeah. taking the money down there, but I would I would even like to see it be that you can break even at 500. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you start looking at that. You know, I mean, it's a little utopian view of it, but but I and I know what you're saying. You know, I mean, the to me the purse difference. The purse difference, like just at the Grand Slam level, between winning and finals and finals and semis, is just—I mean, it's—you know—don't even need, don't even need it, you know, in, in that regard. But uh, you yeah, win I mean, a futures, you win a futures singles title, you're a good tennis player, a very good tennis yeah. player. And you mentioned about the two thirty, but but you you know this, 
if you two thirty, you're not going to be two thirty for the whole year most of the time. So, yeah, so if you had two thirty, you get the points come off. You're down to two eighty. You're not yeah, in that's there. True. You know, yeah. like maybe maybe the idea like the PGA where you have a card and you're yeah. guaranteed so many at this ranking, you're guaranteed this many challengers, this yeah. many tour events, and you choose which ones you get to play, and that's your opportunity. I don't know. We've put the world to right. It's all sorted, Kyle. Nobody, <laughs> nobody needs to worry. We don't need any PTPA. We don't need anything. <laughs> Control the controllables with Kyle Spencer. We've sorted it. Um, it. Top man, it's been it's been great having you on. Yeah, hope hope things die down. Obviously, for everyone in the world and US yeah. college gets back on its feet. Um, it's certainly a massive part of our sport that we that we all need to to continue. So, and, and you keep up the great work. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And, and just know you have a talent at this. Keep going because it's, it's really enjoyable. Thanks a lot, Kyle. A big thank you to Kyle Spencer. Loved the chat. I'm a big fan of college tennis myself and wish everybody well over in the USA right now. Um, anybody involved in US college tennis it really is a massive part of uh, the tennis ecosystem. It's obviously scary times right now and difficult times. But hey, we're going to come out of this stronger. I'm a big believer in bad things. You know, opportunity comes. And I urge you all to keep thinking positive. Keep speaking to people. We're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. Yeah, and we'll come out of this much stronger than we went in. Uh, thinking of you all who have been affected, families and by health and please everyone do stay safe, stay healthy and, and stay positive minded. It's all, it's all we have, it's all we have folks, important that we stay positive in that mind and we look forward to welcoming you back next time. Um, and for now, I'm Dan Kiernan, my co-host John McGann, we are Control the Controllables. So, Nick Lester, a big, big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. I've been listening intently as and when I get the opportunity, and it's been, uh, you've done a great job, bud. Thank you. And also a big thank you for, I know there's been a couple of television shout outs, so that's much appreciated as well. <laughs> Anytime. Um, to, those, to those listening, Nick was, was a player himself. He got to the, the heights of 1,220 ATP. <laughs> I believe, but I know he was also a better level player than that, still plays to a good level and is one of our best tennis commentators out there. He is a freelance journalist, but you will hear him on your television stations on all sorts of sites. Mm -hmm. um, Prime, Eurosport right now with the French Open, BBC. I won't go into all of them because we'll get into it, Nick. Um, but I'm sure you're the envy of many people listening that you get to talk tennis all day. As I always say, Dan, one day I'll get a real job. But right now, for now, I'll just keep going as I am. <laughs> and and, and how, how, I guess, how's it been in the world of commentary the last few months? You haven't had a whole lot to commentate on. No, it's been very different. I mean, I was lucky, Dan. I got to do both Battle of the Brits in the summer, having not done a lot, obviously, through March, April, May. I was asked to do the, the Battle of the Brits in uh, the initial one and then the, the team one, which was actually brilliant because... We were going down to Roehampton every day, driving down there. The BBC took the second one. Um, and I think actually, um, certainly initially, I know Amazon's viewing figures were very good for the first one because 
everyone had been starved of watching tennis. So they were like desperate to try and find some. So I think that was really good. Um, since that, I've, I, I did Cincinnati, I did the US Open, Rome and Hamburg. So I had sort of five, six week block there, all out of London. I think travel is pretty much suspended at the moment in terms of just commentating. I think certainly speaking personally from, from the UK market, Amazon are not really sending any commentators on site because logistically it's too difficult. So I've kind of been out of studios in London Dan just just commentating for the last probably two months, um, which yep. has been great. So, you know, I think, you know, we're like I always say, we're very lucky to have any work right now. So, so we're just happy to be to be back amongst it. And what's the difference, I guess, commentating in a studio compared to commentating live and in person? Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. I'm not going to lie. It's a lot more challenging out in out of London. Um, the conversations you have uh, when you're on site with people, with coaches, with players, you know, we always have to strike a fine balance, Dan, I think, as because I am a broadcaster slash journalist. So I don't want to, you know, it's always a fine balance for me in terms of, you know, speaking to players, because I have obviously the understanding of discretion in terms of what they might tell me and what I can and can't relay. But I've been in the industry long enough, I think, to know that, you know, to, to build up a certain level of uh, respect with people in terms of understanding what I am going to say but I think to be honest when you're in a studio in London it is quite sterile it is mm. quite it's quite hard to get a feel of the conditions it's quite hard to get a feel of the event itself um, the atmosphere around it you are a little more reliant on what I would call kind of internet commentary in terms of just digging in sort of statistics uh, background information trying to find out trying to research the best you can but the sort of the actual day-to-day -day information in terms of what's changed with a player behind the scenes. Have they got a new physical trainer? Have they got a new, are they working with a psychologist? All these things you pick up yeah. by talking, talking to, talking to, peeking to people. You know, I remember being in Cincinnati a couple of years ago, John Millman got on the bus, I had a lovely chat with John, we're chatting away. And there I've got sort of five minutes of conversation in commentary. You know, we were chatting to John, John's doing this, he's been training this. They're the sorts of things, those day-to-day -day things that we miss, I think, as commentators when you are not on site because you're just not getting um, those kind of latest bits of information that they're nice to relay. You know, we don't want to be, we're not necessarily to be sharing secrets of players because that's not fair. But at the same time, we're storytellers, Dan. I'm a storyteller. That is my, like we're doing here, we're, we're telling stories of players and, and what they've been doing. And I think... Um, as I say, when you're not on site, you, 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 there is a void that definitely is missing. Yeah, it's that it's that level of insight, isn't it? That <clears throat> that as yeah. as a as a viewer, you, you do crave mm. that. And, and and I and I must admit, during the Battle of Brits, that was certainly the first one. I really enjoyed mm. the little chats with the coaches, and and I also really enjoyed sure. then the little chats with the players at the change events. How how was that for you yes. as a commentator? Getting them, you're getting them in raw, <laughs> raw emotion. Time. Yes, yes, yeah, delicate. I would say delicate. <laughs> Definitely with the players, it was delicate because I'm also aware. Um, obviously, I didn't play to that level, but having played a little bit, I'm obviously aware that it's a pressure environment. Even though it's only an XO, there was a lot. Of, you know, those guys were. You, you know what it's like with the British guys. They all wanted to win that tournament. So, especially with Andy, obviously he sits down. There was one incident with Andy. I think he sat down after a 30 shot rally and I'm in my ear and the guy's going to me, okay, you've got to speak to Andy now. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, yeah, yeah. I've got to speak to Andy. And I've no problem speaking to Andy and that's no issue, but obviously 
he's just had a 30 shot rally. He's playing his first match back in six months and he's got to talk to me. And probably the last thing he wants to do is talk to me. So we have to approach that question uh, with a certain degree of, you know, of, of care, just in terms of leading. I think then to be honest with that, it was a case of letting the, for me, my approach there was letting the players come to us. So lead the players in with a gentle question. How are you feeling out there? Get them talking. And then I get a sense of where they're at. Coaches was completely different. As you said, the coaches were brilliant. You know, Hilt, Speech, all these guys. We've known these guys a long time. So, again, it helped that I've had that relationship with them. So yeah. when I when they pick up the headsets, they know who Nick Lester is. They know who Barry Cowan or whatever is talking to them. Yeah. So there's that, there's that trust, which is helpful. I think the coach's insight was great, Dan. I think that probably worked, to be honest, from my point of view. I thought that worked a lot better than the players. Players mid-match, you know, Yes, it worked okay, but I thought we got a lot more good content out of the coaches personally. Yeah. And do you think it, that with the coaches, the players, it's not even worth the discussion because it's not going to happen? But do you think mm. do you think with the coaches that is in addition? I guess and that'll lead in that leads into my next question. That's the first part. The next part is what state mm. of tennis the tennis is in currently. There's a lot of discussion mm. around that. So if we are trying mm. to attract more people into the game. Do you think that is an addition that will help the sport and, a, and an addition that might happen? 100%, 100%. And I know that the coaches have been, uh, the ATP have been talking about this for a couple of years in terms of their visibility. Um, not that some necessarily want more visibility. It's not necessarily about that. But I think, let's be honest, Dan, you know, having been in this business, this media business 15 years, there are a lot of press conferences and interviews that go by where you don't learn a whole lot. Yes, there are exceptions. And I think Andy's a great exception in terms of someone that opens up a lot. Federer opens up a lot. But you can go through a lot of press conferences, one with a lot of dull questions and two with a lot of dull answers, and you don't learn a lot. So I think maybe then bringing the coaches in in terms of having access to the coaches. And I think this is something the ATP, I can only speak from the ATP point of view, but I think the ATP certainly have, have tried to get the coaches out there a little more. And I think if they were a bit more visible, I certainly think, again, if you if you look at Amazon or, or the other organizations that I've worked for, I'd love to hear from coaches more. You know, mm. personally, you know, having having sort of had this experience, why shouldn't we hear from Mark Hilton on Dan Evans's progress? What's he been doing, Hilts? What's he been working on? You know, what, what are the things he's been doing? You interviewed Kieran Vorster a few weeks ago. Lovely interview. That's That sort of stuff, Dan, is so good, yeah. I yeah. think for education edu educating the viewer because we always have to we always have to you know think about who we're talking to on the television that's one thing i'm always conscious of you know when people turn on the television who am i talking to yeah. and i think yes there are a lot of tennis fans out there of course there are but and, and how can we educate them without bombarding them with too much information because there's a fine line there as well yeah. you know when we get into our hawkeye analysis does a 65-year-old lady who plays club tennis down in wherever, does she want to know about necessarily the amount of Hawkeye analysis we can deliver? So there is that fine balance then, I think, and, and I'm getting a little off topic, but I think to go back to your original question, yes, I do think we should hear from coaches more. I think there's a lot of value there, and I think they would probably be a little more willing as well to, to talk, especially some with experience, you know, a lot more experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what else? So what state is our sport in? Do you think it's in a good place? From what perspective? I think from the perspective, so the one that I'm hearing a lot, obviously doing these podcasts, and obviously we've had Noah Rubin on, who's quite a big uh, a big advocate of, of some different movement. Obviously we've got the PTPA that mm. is starting to try to form. There's lots of people out there that seem to think it's a dying sport. 
It's mm-hmm. a dying sport in terms of players that are playing. It's a dying sport mm-hmm. in terms of viewers that are watching. And, and, and the, the audience, the demographic that is watching tends to be quite an older audience. So mm. h- how are we getting that sport that's, that's competing so against so many other sports, but not just other sports? Like I, to, to, to go again, slightly off topic, I'm speaking to some, some guy right now around virtual reality sport. And, mm. and, as, I've, and as I've looked into it, I've had nutritionists on the podcast who said mm. one of the biggest fields currently is nutrition mm. for yeah. game for game players mm. for, yeah, for computer absolutely. game players and nutrition for virtual reality so there's there's so many there's so many things out there in the world right now mm. you know absolutely how are we attracting people into the sport that we know is a beautiful sport we know that it's an amazing sport for life we know mm. that it's a sport that can open many many doors mm. but are we in danger of, of losing the next generation, I guess, is my question. Listen, I hope not, okay? I hope not. All I hear, Dan, and I'll talk specifically, you know, personally, I think we have to look at the figures. Every single major, Dan, over the last five or six years has increased crowd numbers. The US Open, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, Indian Wells, I call that a major, it's not, but it's close to. All of those events have had record crowds, Dan, year in, year out over the last five years. So I think the top end is okay. I think that is okay. I don't see any problem with that. Lower down, I think, you know, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I I see it from a a perspective of where I am, and I have been fortunate to travel to the bigger events. I hope not, Dan. I, I I think, you know, kids are definitely changing. There's no doubt in terms of visibility. Again, if I speak at it from a television perspective, uh, I was talking to someone the other day who, uh, about in terms of what their kids watch. And he said to me, I've got a 15 year old and a 17 year old. And the only thing they watch is Netflix and Amazon. I don't, they wouldn't even know what the BBC was. And I think we are bringing that generation up Dan. So I think in terms of selling tennis, I think maybe going down the Amazon route purely from the perspective of TV is probably not a bad one. Cause I do feel as though that's where it's going. So therefore if young kids are on Amazon prime or prime video, and that's the way they're going to grow up then to sell, to put tennis on that platform may actually prove to be quite a, a stroke of genius in five or six years' time when we look down the line. But then again, as you say, we hear this constantly. Patrick Morozov, who's a guy obviously that's bang, banging on about this for quite some time, that the average age of a tennis viewer, I think, is 61. Now, I've heard that as well. I don't know if that's true, Dan. I, I honestly don't know if that's true. Um, I, it's hard for me to say. What do I think about the overall state of the game? I think... What they're trying to do, um, I think Pospisil and Djokovic, and, and again, speaking to a few people sort of behind the scenes, I kind of can understand where it's coming from. I can definitely understand where it's coming. This is not new, Dan, either. You know, the people yeah. seem to think this is a new thing. You know, the US Open, this has been talking about for a year and a half, two years. There's nothing, yeah. this is not particularly new what's coming out of there. So I don't know. I think they're obviously up. Ultimately, Dan, they're after a greater slice of the pie. That's really what they're after. They, they want more money out of the majors. That's certainly one of the complaints that they've had. They don't feel as though the majors have been giving enough money. They look at golf. They're comparing it with golf and other sports. Um, are there, you know, possibly are there too many events, Dan, in, in, as far as too many sort of tour level events? You know, the Masters Series being the nine big events. Are there too many below? Is that a question that we can talk about? Possibly. Again, that's an argument I've heard as well. But then... You know, we've got some, I saw someone propose the other day, and I thought this was actually a very sensible idea that challengers 
should actually be called ATP events. They should be ATP 100s, which I actually thought was a very clever idea in terms of just sort of giving them that platform. Um, so I think big picture. Uh, listen, I'm always an optimist, Dan. So I, I hope I hope things are okay. Um, innovating, I think the, the 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 tour finals in Milan, what they did with the next gen, worked really nicely. I think some of those I actually enjoyed the first, the sort of fast four first four sets. I thought that was a a great watch in terms of the sort of the discipline and the intensity that came with that. Could that be implemented maybe at some some 250s or could they look at using that at some different events? Maybe. Listen, I, I always try and look on the on the sort of glass half full side of things. And I think one thing tennis has been so fortunate, Dan, is to have Federer, Nadal and Djokovic over the last 15 years, because I've been lucky to travel the world these guys fill out stadiums without even trying, you know? So tennis has been very, very lucky, Dan, in the last 15 years to have these greats, these icons of the game, who have not just been good tennis players, but have been great people. You know, Federer and Nadal and, and Djokovic in, in a different kind of way have sold the sport um, without even trying, you know, just by just by the, the nature of their, their personalities, their games. Um, they've filled stadiums around the world. And I think, there is a slight concern in two or three years time, you know, are we still going to have the, the people that are following the sport when they go? I hope we do. I hope, I certainly hope we do. I think the likes of Sid Tsipas and those guys have, are going to engage. I think Dominic team winning a major was huge for the game. Actually. I think that was just the yeah. sort of, you know, he was just the sort of guy that, you know, who, who it was perfect for him, the perfect timing because that raises his profile so Nick Lester, a big, big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure. I've been listening intently as and when I get the opportunity and it's been, uh, you've done a great job, bud. Thank you. And also a big thank you for, I know there's been a couple of television shout outs, so that's much appreciated as mm -hmm. well. Anytime. Um, to, those, to those listening, Nick was, was a player himself. He got to the, the heights of 1,220 ATP. Mm -hmm. I believe, but I know he was also a better level player than that, still plays to a good level and is one of our best tennis commentators out there. He is a freelance journalist, but you will hear him on your television stations on all sorts of sites. <laughs> um, Prime, Eurosport right now with the French Open, BBC. I won't go into all of them because we'll get into it, Nick. Um, but I'm sure you're the envy of many people listening that you get to talk tennis all day. As I always say, Dan, one day I'll get a real job. But right now, for now, I'll just keep going as I am. <laughs> and and, and how, how, I guess, how's it been in the world of commentary the last few months? You haven't had a whole lot to commentate on. No, it's been very different. I mean, I was lucky, Dan. I got to do both Battle of the Brits in the summer, having not done a lot, obviously, through March, April, May. I was asked to do the, the Battle of the Brits in uh, the initial one and then the, the team one, which was actually brilliant because... We were going down to Roehampton every day, driving down there. The BBC took the second one. Um, and I think actually, um, certainly initially, I know Amazon's viewing figures were very good for the first one because everyone had been starved of watching tennis. So they were like desperate to try and find some. So I think that was really good. Um, since that, I've, I, I did Cincinnati. I did the US Open, Rome and Hamburg. So I had sort of five, six week block there, all out of London. I think travel is pretty much suspended at the moment in terms of just commentating. I think certainly speaking personally from, from the UK market, Amazon are not really sending any commentators on site because logistically it's too difficult. So I've kind of been out of studios in London, Dan, just, just commentating for the last probably two months, um, which yep. has been great. So, you know, I think 
you know, like I always say, we're very lucky to have any work right now. So, so we're just happy to be, to be back amongst it. And what's the difference, I guess, commentating in a studio compared to commentating live and in person? Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. I'm not going to lie. It's a lot more challenging out, in, out of London. Um, the conversations you have uh, when you're on site with people, with coaches, with players, you know, we always have to strike a fine balance, Dan, I think, as because I am a broadcaster slash journalist. So I don't want to, you know, it's always a fine balance for me in terms of, you know, speaking to players because I have obviously the understanding of discretion in terms of what they might tell me and what I can and can't relay. But I've been in the industry long enough, I think, to know that, you know, to, to build up a certain level of uh, respect with people in terms of understanding what I am going to say. But I think, to be honest, when you're in a studio in London, it is quite sterile. It is mm. quite, it's quite hard to get a feel of the conditions. It's quite hard to get a feel of the event itself, um, the atmosphere around it. You are a little more reliant on what I would call kind of internet commentary in terms of just digging in sort of statistics uh, background information, trying to find out, trying to research the best you can, yeah. but the sort of the actual day-to-day -day information in terms of what's changed with a player behind the scenes. Have they got a new physical trainer? Have they got a new, are they working with a psychologist? All these things you pick up yeah. by talking, talking to, talking to, peeking to people. You know, I remember being in Cincinnati a couple of years ago, John Millman got on the bus, I had a lovely chat with John, we're chatting away, and there I've got sort of five minutes of conversation in commentary, you know, we were chatting to John, John's doing this, he's been training this, they're the sorts of things, those day-to-day -day things that we miss, I think, as commentators, when you are not on site, because you're just not getting... Um, those kind of latest bits of information that they're nice to relay you know we don't want to be we're not necessarily to be sharing secrets of players because that's not fair but at the same time we're storytellers Dan I'm a storyteller that is my like we're doing here we're, we're telling stories of players and, and what they've been doing and I think um, as I say when you're not on site you, you, you there is a void that definitely is missing yeah it's that it's that level of insight isn't it that <clears throat> that as, yeah. as a as a viewer you, you do crave mm. that, and, 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 I, and I must admit, during the Battle of Brits, that was certainly the first one, I really enjoyed mm. the little chats with the coaches, and, and I also really enjoyed sure. then the little chats with the players at the change of ends. How, how was that for you yes. as a commentator? Getting them, you're getting them in raw, <laughs> raw emotion time. Yes, yes. Yeah, delicate. I would say delicate. <laughs> Definitely with the players, it was delicate, because I'm also aware... Um, obviously, I didn't play to that level, but having played a little bit, I'm obviously aware that it's a pressure environment, even though it's only an XO. There was a lot of, you know, those guys, were, you, you know what it's like with the British guys. They all wanted to win that tournament. So especially with Andy, obviously, he sits down. There was one incident with Andy. I think he sat down after a 30 shot rally and I'm in my ear and the guy's going to me, OK, you've got to speak to Andy now. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, yeah, yeah. I've got to speak to Andy. And I'm, I have no problem speaking to Andy and that's no issue. But obviously... He's just had a 30 shot rally. He's playing his first match back in six months and he's got to talk to me. And probably the last thing he wants to do is talk to me. So we have to approach that question uh, with a certain degree of, you know, of, of care, just in terms of leading. I think, Dan, to be honest with that, it was a case of letting the, for me, my approach there was letting the players come to us. So lead the players in with a gentle question. How are you feeling out there? Get them talking. And then I get a sense of where they're at. Coaches was completely different. As you said, the coaches were brilliant. You know, Hilt, Beach, 
all these guys we've known these guys a long time so again it helped that i've had that relationship with them so yeah. when i when they pick up the headsets they know who nick lester is they know who barry cowan or whatever's talking to them yeah. so there's that there's that trust which is helpful i think the coach's insight was great then i think that probably awesome. worked to be honest from my point of view i thought that worked a lot better than the players players mid-match you know yes it worked okay but i thought we got a lot more good content out of the coaches personally yeah and do you think it that with the coaches the players it's not even worth the discussion because it's not going to happen but do you think mm. do, do you think with the coaches that is in addition i guess and that'll lead in that leads into my next question that's the first part the next part is what state mm. of tennis the tennis is in currently there's a lot of discussion mm. around that so if we are trying mm. to attract more people into the game do you think that is an addition that will help the sport and, a, and an addition that might happen? 100%, 100%. And I know that the coaches have been, uh, the ATP have been talking about this for a couple of years in terms of their visibility. Um, not that some necessarily want more visibility. It's not necessarily about that. But I think, let's be honest, Dan, you know, having been in this business, this media business 15 years, there are a lot of press conferences and interviews that go by where you don't learn a whole lot. Yes, there are exceptions. And I think Andy's a great exception in terms of someone that opens up a lot. Federer opens up a lot. But you can go through a lot of press conferences, one with a lot of dull questions and two with a lot of dull answers. And you don't learn a lot. So I think maybe then bringing the coaches in in terms of having access to the coaches. And I think this is something the ATP, I can only speak from the ATP point of view, but I think the ATP certainly have, have tried to get the coaches out there a little more. And I think if they were a bit more visible, I certainly think, again, if you if you look at Amazon or, or the other organizations that I've worked for, I'd love to hear from coaches more. You know, mm -hmm. personally, you know, having having sort of had this experience, why shouldn't we hear from Mark Hilton on Dan Evans's progress? What's he been doing, Hilts? What's he been working on? You know, what, what are the things he's been doing? You interviewed Kieran Vorster a few weeks ago. Lovely interview. That's that sort of stuff that is so good, yeah. I yeah. think for education edu educating the viewer because we always have to we always have to you know think about who we're talking to on the television that's one thing i'm always conscious of you know when people turn on the television who am i talking to yeah. and i think yes there are a lot of tennis fans out there of course there are but and how can we educate them without bombarding them with too much information because there's a fine line there as well yeah. you know when we get into our hawkeye analysis does a 65 year old lady who plays club tennis down in wherever, does she want to know about necessarily the amount of Hawkeye analysis we can deliver? So mm -hmm. there is that fine balance then I think, and, and I'm getting a little off topic, but I think to go back to your original question, yes, I do think we should hear from coaches more. I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of value there. And I think they would probably be a little more willing as well to, to talk, especially some with experience, you know, a lot more experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what else? So what state is our sport in? Do you think it's in a good place? From what perspective? I think from the perspective, so the one that I'm hearing a lot, obviously doing these podcasts, and obviously we've had Noah Rubin on, who's quite a big uh, a big advocate of, of some different movement. Obviously we've got the PTPA that mm. is starting to try to form. There's lots of people out there that seem to think it's a dying sport. It's mm. a dying sport in terms of players that are playing, it's a dying sport mm. in terms of viewers that are watching and 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 the the audience, the demographic that is watching tends to be quite an older audience. So mm. how are we getting that sport that's that's competing so against so many other sports, but not just other sports? Like I to 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 go again slightly off topic, I'm speaking to some some guy right now around virtual reality sport. 
and mm. and as I've and as I've yeah. looked into it, I've had nutritionists on the podcast who said mm. one of the biggest fields currently is nutrition mm. for yeah. game for game players. Mm-hmm. For, for computer Absolutely. game players and nutrition for virtual reality so there's there's so many there's so many things out there in the world right now mm-hmm. you know Absolutely. how are we attracting people into the sport that we know is a beautiful sport we know that it's an amazing sport for life we know mm-hmm. that it's a sport that can open many many doors mm-hmm. but are we in danger of of losing the next generation i guess is my question listen i hope not Okay, I hope not. All I hear, Dan, and I'll talk specifically, you know, personally, I think we have to look at the figures. Every single major, Dan, over the last five or six years has increased crowd numbers. The US Open, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, Indian Wells, I call that a major, it's not, but it's close to. All of those events have had record crowds, Dan, year in, year out over the last five years. So I think the top end is okay. I think that is okay. I don't see any problem with that. Lower down... I think, you know, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I, I see it from a, a perspective of where I am and I have been fortunate to travel to the bigger events. I hope not, Dan. I, I think, I think you know, kids are definitely changing. There's no doubt in terms of visibility. Again, if I speak at it from a television perspective, uh, I was talking to someone the other day about in terms of what their kids watch. And he said to me, I've got a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old and the only thing they watch is Netflix and Amazon. I don't, they wouldn't even know what the BBC was. And I think we are bringing that generation up, Dan. So I think in terms of selling tennis, I think maybe going down the Amazon route purely from the perspective of TV is probably not a bad one because I do feel as though that's where it's going. So therefore, if young kids are on Amazon Prime or Prime Video and that's the way they're going to grow up, then to sell, to put tennis on that platform may actually prove to be quite a, a stroke of genius in five or six years' time when we look down the line. But then again, as you say, we hear this constantly. Patrick Morozov, who's a guy obviously that's bang, banging on about this for quite some time, that the average age of a tennis viewer, I think, is 61. Now, I've heard that as well. I don't know if that's true, Dan. I, I honestly don't know if that's true. Um, I, it's hard for me to say. What do I think about the overall state of the game? I think what they're trying to do, um, I think Pospisil and Djokovic, and, and again, speaking to a few people sort of behind the scenes, I kind of can understand where it's coming from. I can definitely understand where it's coming. This is not new, Dan, either. You know, the people yeah. seem to think this is a new thing. You know, the US Open, this has been talking about for a year and a half, two years. There's nothing, yeah. this is not particularly new what's coming out of there. So I don't know. I think they're obviously, ultimately, Dan, they're after a greater slice of the pie. That's really what they're after. They, they want more money out of the majors. That's certainly one of the complaints that they've had. They don't feel as though the majors have been giving enough money. They look at golf, they're comparing it with golf and other sports. Um, are there, you know, possibly are there too many events, Dan, in, in, as far as too many sort of tour level events, you know, the Masters series being the nine big events, are there too many below? Is that a question that we can talk about? Possibly. Again, that's an argument I've heard as well. But then, you know, we've got some, I saw someone propose the other day, and I thought this was actually a very sensible idea that challenges should actually be called ATP events. They should be ATP 100s, which I actually thought was a very clever idea in terms of just sort of giving them that platform. Um, so I think big picture. Uh, listen, I'm always an optimist, Dan. So I, I hope I hope things are okay. Um, innovating, I think the the, the the tour finals in Milan, what they did with the next gen, worked really nicely. I think some of those I actually enjoyed the first, the sort of fast four first four sets. I thought that was a a great watch in terms of the sort of the discipline and the intensity that came with that. 
could that be implemented maybe at some some 250s or could they look at using that at some different events maybe listen i i always try and look on the on the sort of glass half full side of things and i think one thing tennis has been so fortunate dan is to have federer nadal and djokovic over the last 15 years because i've been lucky to travel the world these guys fill out stadiums without even trying, you know. So tennis has been very, very lucky, Dan, in the last 15 years to have these greats, these icons of the game, who have not just been good tennis players, but have been great people. You know, Federer and Nadal and, and Djokovic, in, in a different kind of way, have sold the sport um, without even trying, you know, just by, just by the, the nature of their, their personalities, their games. Um, they've filled stadiums around the world. And I think there is a slight concern in two or three years time, you know, are we still going to have the, the people that are following the sport when they go? I hope we do. I hope, I certainly hope we do. I think the likes of Sid Tsipas and those guys have, are going to engage. I think Dominic team winning a major was huge for the game. Actually. I think that was just the yeah. sort of, you know, he was just the sort of guy that, you know, who, who it was perfect for him, the perfect timing because that raises his profile. So Nick Lester, a big, big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for joining um, us. Absolute pleasure. I've been listening intently as and when I get the opportunity and it's been, uh, you've done a great job, bud. Thank you. And, uh, and also a big thank you for, I know there's been a couple of television shout outs, so that's much appreciated as well. <laughs> Anytime. Um, to, those, to those listening, Nick was, was a player himself. He got to the, the height of 1,220 ATP. <laughs> I believe, but I know he was also a better level player than that, still plays to a good level and is one of our best tennis commentators out there. He is a freelance journalist, but you will hear him on your television stations on all sorts of sites. Mm -hmm. um, Prime, Eurosport right now with the French Open, BBC. I won't go into all of them because we'll get into it, Nick. Um, but I'm sure you're the envy of many people listening that you get to talk tennis all day. As I always say, Dan, one day I'll get a real job. But right now, for now, I'll just keep going as I am. <laughs> and and, and how, how, I guess, how's it been in the world of commentary the last few months? You haven't had a whole lot to commentate on. No, it's been very different. I mean, I was lucky, Dan. I got to do both Battle of the Brits in the summer, having not done a lot, obviously, through March, April, May. I was asked to do the, the Battle of the Brits in uh, the initial one and then the, the team one, which was actually brilliant because... We were going down to Roehampton every day, driving down there. The BBC took the second one. Um, and I think actually, um, certainly initially, I know Amazon's viewing figures were very good for the first one because everyone had been starved of watching tennis. So they were like desperate to try and find some. So I think that was really good. Um, since that, I've, I, I did Cincinnati. I did the US Open, Rome and Hamburg. So I had sort of five, six week block there, all out of London. I think travel is pretty much suspended at the moment in terms of just commentating. I think certainly speaking personally from, from the UK market, Amazon are not really sending any commentators on site because logistically it's too difficult. So I've kind of been out of studios in London, Dan, just, just commentating for the last probably two months, um, which yeah. has been great. So, you know, I think, you know, like I always say, I, we're very lucky to have any work right now. So, so we're just happy to be, to be back amongst it. And what's the difference, I guess, commentating in a studio compared to commentating live and in person? Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. I'm not going to lie. It's a lot more challenging out, in, out of London. Um, the conversations you have uh, when you're on site with people, with coaches, with players, you know, we always have to strike a fine balance, Dan, I think, as because I am a broadcaster slash journalist, so I don't want to 
you know, it's always a fine balance for me in terms of, you know, speaking to players because I have obviously the understanding of discretion in terms of what they might tell me and what I can and can't relay. But I've been in the industry long enough, I think, to know that, you know, to, to build up a certain level of uh, respect with people in terms of understanding what I am going to say. But I think, to be honest, when you're in the studio in London, it is quite sterile. It is mm. quite, it's quite hard to get a feel of the conditions. It's quite hard to get a feel of the event itself, um, the atmosphere around it. You are a little more reliant on what I would call kind of internet commentary in terms of just digging in sort of statistics, uh, background information, trying to find out, trying to research the best you can. Yeah. But the sort of the actual day to day information in terms of what's changed with a player behind the scenes, have they got a new physical trainer, have they got a new, are they working with a psychologist, all these things you pick up yeah. by talking, talking to talking to talking to people. You know, I remember being in Cincinnati a couple of years ago, John Millman got on the bus, I had a lovely chat with John, we're chatting away, and there I've got sort of five minutes of conversation in commentary, you know, we we're chatting to John, John's doing this, he's been training this. They're the sorts of things, those day-to-day -day things that we miss, I think, as commentators when you are not on site because you're just not getting um, those kind of latest bits of information that, that are nice to relay. You know, we don't want to be, we're not necessarily to be sharing secrets of players because that's not fair. But at the same time, we're storytellers, Dan. I'm a storyteller. That is my, like we're doing here. We're, we're telling stories of players and, and what they've been doing. And I think... Um, as I say, when you're not on site, you, you, there is a void that definitely is missing. Yeah, it's that it's that level of insight, isn't it? That <clears throat> that as yeah. as a as a viewer, you, you do crave mm. that. And, and and I and I must admit, during the Battle of Brits, that was certainly the first one. I really enjoyed mm. the little chats with the coaches, and and I also really enjoyed sure. then the little chats with the players at the change of ends. How how was that for you yes. as a commentator? Getting them, you're getting them in raw, <laughs> raw emotion. Time. Yes, yes, yeah. Delicate, I would say delicate. <laughs> Definitely with the players, it was delicate because I'm also aware. Um, obviously, I didn't play to that level, but having played a little bit, I'm obviously aware that it's a pressure environment. Even though it's only an XO, there was a lot. Of, you know, those guys were. You, you know what it's like with the British guys. They all wanted to win that tournament. So, especially with Andy, obviously he sits down. There was one incident with Andy. I think he sat down after a 30 shot rally and I'm in my ear and the guy's going to me, okay, you've got to speak to Andy now. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, yeah, yeah. I've got to speak to Andy. And I'm, I've no problem speaking to Andy and that's no issue. But obviously he's just had a 30 shot rally. He's playing his first match back in six months and he's got to talk to me. And probably the last thing he wants to do is talk to me. So we have to approach that question uh, with a certain degree of, you know, of, of care, just in terms of leading. I think then, to be honest with that, it was a case of letting the, for me, my approach there was letting the players come to us. So lead the players in with a gentle question. How are you feeling out there? Get them talking. And then I get a sense of where they're at. Coaches was completely different. As you said, the coaches were brilliant. You know, Hilt, Speech, all these guys, we've known these guys a long time. So again, it helped that I've had that relationship with them. So yeah. when I when they pick up the headsets, they know who Nick Lester is. They know who Barry Cowan or whatever is talking to them. Yeah. So there's that there's that trust, which is helpful. I think the coach's insight was great, Dan. I think that probably worked, to be honest, from my point of view. I thought that worked a lot better than the players. Players mid-match, you know, yes, it worked okay, but I thought we got a lot more good content out of the coaches personally. Yeah. And do you think it, that... With the coaches, the players, it's not even worth the discussion because it's not going to happen. But do you think? Mm. Do you think with the coaches that is in addition 
I guess and that'll lead in that leads into my next question. That's the first part. The next part is what state mm. of tennis the tennis is in currently. There's a lot of discussion mm. around that. So if we are trying mm. to attract more people into the game, do you think that is mm. an addition that will help the sport and, and an addition that might happen? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I know that the coaches have been uh, the ATP have been talking about this for a couple of years in terms of their visibility. Um, not that some necessarily want more visibility. It's not necessarily about that. But I think, let's be honest, Dan, you know, having been in this business, this media business 15 years, there are a lot of press conferences and interviews that go by where you don't learn a whole lot. Yes, there are exceptions. And I think Andy's a great exception in terms of someone that opens up a lot. Federer opens up a lot. But you can go through a lot of press conferences, one with a lot of dull questions and two with a lot of dull answers, and you don't learn a lot. So I think maybe then bringing the coaches in in terms of having access to the coaches. And I think this is something the ATP, I can only speak from the ATP point of view, but I think the ATP certainly have, have tried to get the coaches out there a little more. And I think if they were a bit more visible, I certainly think, again, if you if you look at Amazon or, or the other organizations that I've worked for, I'd love to hear from coaches more. You know, mm-hmm. personally, you know, having having sort of had this experience, why shouldn't we hear from Mark Hilton on Dan Evans's progress? What's he been doing, Hiltz? What's he been working on? You know, what, what are the things he's been doing? You interviewed Kieran Vorster a few weeks ago. Lovely interview. That's That sort of stuff, Dan, is so good, yeah. I yeah. think for education edu- educating the viewer because we always have to we always have to you know think about who we're talking to on the television that's one thing i'm always conscious of you know when people turn on the television who am i talking to yeah. and i think yes there are a lot of tennis fans out there of course there are but and, and how can we educate them without bombarding them with too much information because there's a fine line there as well yeah. you know when we get into our hawkeye analysis does a 65 year old lady who plays club tennis down in wherever, does she want to know about necessarily the amount of Hawkeye analysis we can deliver? So mm-hmm. there is that fine balance then I think, and, and I'm getting a little off topic, but I think to go back to your original question, yes, I do think we should hear from coaches more. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of value there. And I think they would probably be a little more willing as well to, to talk, especially some with experience, you know, a lot more experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what else? So what state is our sport in? Do you think it's in a good place? From what perspective? I think from the perspective, so the one that I'm hearing a lot, obviously doing these podcasts, and obviously we've had Noah Rubin on, who's quite a big uh, a big advocate of, of some different movement. Obviously we've got the PTPA that mm. is starting to try to form. There's lots of people out there that seem to think it's a dying sport. It's mm. a dying sport in terms of players that are playing, it's a dying sport mm. in terms of viewers that are watching and 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 the the audience the demographic that is watching tends to be quite an older audience so mm. h- how are we getting that sport that's that's competing so against so many other sports but not just other sports like i to 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 go again slightly off topic i'm speaking to some some guy right now around virtual reality sport and mm. and as i've and as i've mm. looked into it I've had nutritionists on the podcast who said mm. one of the biggest fields currently is nutrition mm. yeah. for game for game players mm. for, for computer Absolutely. game players and nutrition for virtual reality. So there's there's so many there's so many things out there in the world right now. Mm. You know, Absolutely. how are we attracting people into the sport that we know is a beautiful sport? We know that it's an amazing sport for life. We know mm. that it's a sport that can open many many doors, mm. but are we in danger of, of losing the next generation, I guess, is my question. 
listen, I hope not. Okay, I hope not. All I hear, Dan, and I'll talk specifically, you know, personally, I think we have to look at the figures. Every single major, Dan, over the last five or six years has increased crowd numbers. The US Open, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, Indian Wells, I call that a major, it's not, but it's close to. All of those events have had record crowds, Dan, week in, year in, year out over the last five years. So I think the top end is okay. I think that is okay. I don't see any problem with that. Lower down, I think, you know, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I, I see it from a, a perspective of where I am and I have been fortunate to travel to the bigger events. I hope not, Dan. I, I think, I think you know, kids are definitely changing. There's no doubt in terms of visibility. Again, if I speak at it from a television perspective, uh, I was talking to someone the other day about in terms of what their kids watch. And he said to me, I've got a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old and the only thing they watch is Netflix and Amazon. I don't, they wouldn't even know what the BBC was. And I think we are bringing that generation up, Dan. So I think in terms of selling tennis, I think maybe going down the Amazon route purely from the perspective of TV is probably not a bad one because I do feel as though that's where it's going. So therefore, if young kids are on Amazon Prime or Prime Video and that's the way they're going to grow up, then to, sell, to put tennis on that platform may actually prove to be quite a, a stroke of genius in five or six years' time when we look down the line. But then again, as you say, we hear this constantly. Patrick Morozov, who's a guy obviously that's bang, banging on about this for quite some time, that the average age of a tennis viewer, I think, is 61. Now, I've heard that as well. I don't know if that's true, Dan. I, I honestly don't know if that's true. Um, I, it's hard for me to say. What do I think about the overall state of the game? I think what they're trying to do, um, I think Pospisil and Djokovic, and, and again, speaking to a few people sort of behind the scenes, I kind of can understand where it's coming from. I can definitely understand where it's coming. This is not new, Dan, either. You know, the people yeah. seem to think this is a new thing. You know, the US Open, this has been talking about for a year and a half, two years. There's nothing, yeah. this is not particularly new what's coming out of there. So I don't know. I think they're obviously, ultimately, Dan, they're after a greater slice of the pie. That's really what they're after. They, they want more money out of the majors. That's certainly one of the complaints that they've had. They don't feel as though the majors have been giving enough money. They look at golf, they're comparing it with golf and other sports. Um, are there, you know, possibly are there too many events, Dan, in, in, as far as too many sort of pool level events, you know, the Masters Series being the nine big events, are there too many below? Is that a question that we can talk about? Possibly. Again, that's an argument I've heard as well. But then, you know, we've got some, I saw someone propose the other day, and I thought this was actually a very sensible idea that challenges should actually be called ATP events. It should be ATP 100s, which I actually thought was a very clever idea in terms of just sort of giving them that platform. Um, so I think big picture, uh, listen, I'm always an optimist, Dan. So I, I hope I hope things are okay. Um, innovating, I think the, 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 the tour finals in Milan, what they did with the next gen worked really nicely. I think some of those, I actually enjoyed the, first, the sort of fast four, first four sets. I thought that was a, a great watch in terms of the sort of the discipline and the intensity that came with that. Could that be implemented maybe at some, some 250s or could they look at using that at some different events? Maybe. Listen, I, I always try and look on the on the sort of glass half full side of things. And I think one thing tennis has been so fortunate, Dan, is to have Federer and Nadal and Djokovic over the last 15 years, because I've been lucky to travel the world. These guys fill out stadiums without even trying, you know. So tennis has been very, very lucky, Dan, in the last 15 years to have these great these icons of the game who have not just been good tennis players but have been great people you know Federer and Nadal and and Djokovic in, in a different kind of way have sold the sport 
um, without even trying, you know, just by just by the the nature of their their personalities, their games, um, they filled stadiums around the world. And I think there is a slight concern in two or three years time. You know, are we still going to have the the people that are following the sport when they go? I hope we do. I hope I certainly hope we do. I think the likes of Sid Sipas and those guys have are going to engage. I think Dominic team winning a major was huge for the game. Actually, I think that was just the yeah. sort of, you know, he was just the sort of guy that, you know, who, who it was perfect for him, the perfect timing because that raises his profile. 